Welcome to another episode of Renegade Detroit Investors. I'm your host, Jeremy Burgess, professional real estate investor, permaculture and urban farmer, curmudgeon, and skeptic. What is Renegade Detroit Investors? Now referred to as RDI for the rest of the show. RDI is a local real estate investment and business group that meets monthly at various locations throughout Metro Detroit. This group is about networking and doing deals. This isn't your grandma's Ria. Stay home. No sales from the front and no smell of stale coffee, Bengay, and disappointment. RDI is also this podcast where once a week I sit down with interesting and successful, successful business people getting shit done and I pick their brain for your amusement and hopefully education. And I'd like to take a minute. If you enjoy this podcast, remember it is a free podcast. Please give it a like and share it across the internet. It really helps out. And if you have any suggestions and or comments, you're not a total ass clown or loser, please reach out to me. If there's something I'm not doing that you would like me to do, I'd rather hear it than not hear it. Go to renegadedetroit.com. Yes, I realize it's not updated. It will be soon. If you're interested in the local meetings, go to meetup.com forward slash investors, Or you can go to facebook.com forward slash Detroit Investment Club. If you just want to follow me, you can hit me up on Twitter at Jeremy Burgess, or if you prefer to watch this as a video or stream it from YouTube, go to youtube.com forward slash user forward slash Detroit Wholesalers. Now for our legal disclaimer, because you're all a bunch of suing assholes, in no way, shape, or form should anything that I say or my guests say be taken as legal and or investment advice. We highly recommend that before you make any investment, and or investment decisions, you contact a lawyer or and or other licensed professionals. Be an adult. Don't fucking sue me. Now, time for our show quote of the day. Every show I try and pick a quote that I think will set the tone for the podcast and hopefully your week in business and in life as well. And today's show quote is, without failure, there is no progress. Boom. Without failure, there is no progress progress. Stefan Molyneux. Thanks, man. Thanks for coming out. Without further ado, let me introduce you to my guest and friend, Tommy Desmond. Cool dude. Tommy Desmond, serial entrepreneur and full-time real estate agent with Keller Williams. He's a team leader over at Desmond Realty Group. Tommy's also a licensed builder, real estate investor with many rentals, residential and commercial and is active with multiple real estate investor associations. He is also a member of the Zoning Board of Appeals for the City of Troy, where he is infiltrating the belly of the beast, <laughs> destroying bureaucracy when and where he can. Yeah, Ron Swanson. That's right. Past businesses include screen printing, selling code to the highest bidder, which we'll talk about that, but he can't talk a lot about it. That's just how it rolls, talk man. About some of them. Some of several, it. Several, but not all of them. Tommy lives and serves in Troy, Michigan, where he's married with three kids. And for some strange reason, he loves electronic music. But we're not going to hold that against him. Welcome, Tommy. Thank you. Treat me gently. I went to your Tao. What was it? Tao. Tao Groove. You found that? Wow. I I was looking. I was getting all over the Internet trying to figure it out. Wow. uh, That was interesting. But I like some weird shit, too. hate techno? I wouldn't say hate, but. You know, you're in Detroit. If you say you hate techno, they're all going to just get universally shunned and thrown out. I think I'm in Troy. 
Not in Detroit. Does that happen in, in Troy? You're in Detroit. I'm in Troy. <laughs> the electronic music uh, crowd's a little rough in Troy. Yeah, they'll, they'll cut someone up. Tommy Desmond, originally from Jersey. 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 Did I get that right? Jersey. It's like a hump. you got to ride it. Jersey. Jersey. Man, did you always want to be an entrepreneur? Uh, yes. Well, I, I don't know if I wanted to be an entrepreneur, but I just was. That's Thought about way, it? You came out that way? That's the way it went. I remember very, very specifically my first venture, and this was in the 80s, so statute of limitations has passed, and you can't sue me for anything, but I was a kid, and uh, I sold cigarettes by the pack. Lucy's? Oh, by the pack. By the pack. Okay. Because there was a lot of families on our block. There was about 3,000 families that lived on a block over there. And we would walk, uh, I would walk up and down all the stairs in each of the projects and collect orders from all the single moms because they couldn't leave the house because they had kids everywhere running and yelling. And I would go to the party store and buy a garbage bag of smokes and distribute them. And I marked everything up. And it would give you enough money to, you know, mess around, get hot dogs and stuff in Manhattan. Like, you know. What was the markup on that? Marked up. Well, I mean, it was like a dime or a quarter a pack. It was pretty good back then. That was pretty decent. Like, Would that be like a buck like a pack bucks. now? Yeah, it was only like $2 a pack. Well, they're paying for the walk-in, right? They're paying for the entire delivery service. Cigarettes directly yeah, to I your door. I at home playing NES. But TommySmokesNow.com. <laughs> I just made that up, so please, dear God, don't go. I, I'm not in that game any longer, <laughs> and I do not, you know, advocate smoking or drinking or anything bad. Or selling. Ever. Yeah, none yeah. of that. But it was a start. I mean, it definitely did one thing in that it you know, gave you uh, an opportunity to see that if you need money for a thing, you can get the money for a thing independent of anybody else. Uh, asking, you don't have to ask, you don't have a job. They didn't tell me when to get there. I was pretty consistent because it made me money, but, you know, it was my money and no one told me that I couldn't have it or anything. No, you saw, you saw a need. You filled it yeah. profitably. Yeah. Which means you can continue doing it. And they were pleased because they needed, you know, what they needed. And I was there. And like I said, it was the 80s, so they didn't have any qualms about giving, you know, a garbage bag of cigarettes to an 8-year-old kid in Jersey. No, no. <laughs> I used to have to go buy that stuff. Might be a little difficult yeah. now, but back then it wasn't, so. I remember being a kid. It was a whole, whole different world back there. They'd give you beer. They'd give you, Mom, send me down yep. for this, all that. It was just really different. So that was your first entrepreneurial business. Obviously, you're no longer doing that. No, no I, was, I was probably about seven or eight. Damn, that was early. Well, I mean, you know, you kind of do things earlier then because there's no entertaining things to do in the projects. You what do you think? Much it. Yeah, what do you think you made every week? Just out of curiosity, flipping cigarettes. I don't know, 40, 50 bucks. You were born to flip. I just realized that. <laughs> flip cigarettes, flip code, flip houses. It works. Flip man. cups. I don't it know. Works. Do that in for Joe. Buy low, sell high. Buy low, sell high. Well, and or provide a service. Two bucks. I remember, I think they were packaged. Everybody smoked trues, which they don't have them anymore, I don't think. But it was like a weird little shape filtered thing. And they were like a buck 85. And I just charged two bucks for them. And that was like most of my order. 15. That's like a 10, was it 10, 15% markup? Yeah, it's not bad. Like, not you bad. Know, by the time you add it up over the week, like that was money. You All know? you had was sweat, too. You just walk from point A it to point B. It wasn't even a lot of sweat. Party stores. Didn't even street. have to use your own money, right? Oh, no. I get the money from them when I go. They give me the cash, and then I go over to the store, and I just keep what was not used to buy this, the product. You printed money by walking. 
Yeah, I guess. We did not print money. Disclaimer. (laughs) Watch it, man. I know. Sorry. Yeah, it worked. And the model was solid, and I continued the same general premise for most of my life thereafter. Well, what came next? What came after flipping smokes? Uh, Actually, I didn't even think of that. The next thing that I tried to sell... And this one didn't go as smoothly because it was there was other moving parts. And I had gotten a copy of Ninja Magazine. And it was one of those, you know, like now, one of those magazines where now, like, as a grown man, you look at it and you'd be like, what kind of dude would buy this magazine? But basically it was like, you know, stories about ninjas, like MMA stuff. Steve Londo would probably love this magazine. It had in the back, there was an order form where they would sell like uh, – you know, Ninja Stars and stuff. Sounds like a badass magazine. What are you talking yeah. about? I would buy this magazine. This is like the 80s, like, and it's, it had all written all cool ninja. And there was a draw ninja on the first cool. But, um, okay, back to... Karate Kid, it's yeah. all right. So anyway, I, may, I, I just took out the order form page. And I was like, all right, well, I can sell all this stuff to other kids, but I'll just... Mark, Mark it up. It up. That's, that's genius. <laughs> and, and I will, you know, fulfill. So I was my first drop shipping experience. Put it that way, you know. And and honestly, the drop it, ship is dropped. It worked fine, but the problem was is that I'm ordering uh, weapons out of the back of a magazine. The consistency. I mean, you imagine the person who publishes Ninja Magazine and then you know sells size out of the back of Ninja Magazine. It don't imagine. It's probably not a streamlined. You know, process, you know, from some warehouse in Manhattan somewhere. So a lot of customers didn't get their products. Uh oh. Um, which in this particular instance was a pretty good idea because they were all weapons. So if they had gotten them and they were mad, it'd be worse than if they didn't get them and they were mad. That's true. So, so they never sent them to you. They never, they, some people got some of their stuff, other people didn't get all, some of their stuff. I got the money and ordered it, you know, but at the end of the day, that was my first uh, experience with a chargeback. Even though it was just cash money, and you Ooh. know, they all knew where I lived. So. That's bad. Yeah, Did you have to pay all that money back. And get I had beat to up? pay. I had to pay some money back, but not as much as uh, would be expected. Back to the show quote: "Without failure, there is no progress." I've, I've had several major failures. Before, and I've had good successes, but I've also smashed several companies right into the dirt because of my lack of focus and inexperience in different ways too. So, well, I feel like you're. Uh your life in Manhattan is also unique and different. I don't imagine too many people would have this experience in other places. Maybe I'm wrong about this. So densely know. populated. How many families would be in a square block? Um, well, I mean, it, the, the, the particular area in New Jersey that I was living in, I believe it's still the most densely populated city in the world. Um, and that was Union City was for many years the most densely populated place because they they broke up cities over there differently than we do. They would break it up by population, and it was so much that you can drive a couple blocks and have gone through two cities on the coast in New Jersey wow. because it's like that's how because they stack them up like shoeboxes, you know. So um, there was a ton. I mean, I wouldn't know how to even quantify it now, and you know, because I'm so suburbanized out here in Michigan that it's so different. But uh, logistically, I could only imagine it was an utter nightmare to do anything functional with a city of that scale. So, so there's something special about the land in Jersey where you just have to build up instead of out, or you have no. Well, the value of it's so high. I mean, literally, the main. Uh, I mean, because this is we're talking right on the Hudson River. So like every shot from every movie you've seen of like Manhattan looking like an awesome place 
they were standing on this area in Jersey when they ah. when they shot that footage. So the main product for for New Jersey on that in that area is having land close to Manhattan because people live there and take the trains in. So the value of that land is so incredibly huge that I mean. It's the only way they can make money stacking like corn not to. Yeah. yeah. I mean, if I had to play, I would totally do that. You know, if I have you seen Escape from L.A. I have, yes. Is that how you got out of Jersey? <laughs> no, no, it wasn't that brutal. Okay, well, how did how did you escape Jersey for the lovely Metro Detroit? I've really toured the nicest places in the world. I've gone from Jersey to Detroit. No, uh, my father was a labor leader, and that's you know he was a staunch socialist who I know you're mm. well behind. Yes. <laughs> Um, Bernie Sanders ilk, and, or uh, more like a yeah. Noam Chomsky ilk. I was I was definitely raised in a uh, in in a, in a socialism was not a bad word in my house, um, you know. And he just really believed in the you know concept behind it. And now you're a kid, you don't know what's going on with anything, um, you know. But he he got uh, he became one of the leaders of the Irish Caucus for the UAW in New Jersey in Teterboro, and him and several other. I mean, you know, where else are we going to go? You know, back then, yeah. you, you rise through the ranks in the union there, you're ending up in Detroit. So he, uh, he ended up in Detroit. We moved back and forth a bunch of times before finally officially being here forever. Wait, wait, um, so if I heard that correctly, socialists made you come to Detroit. Yeah, yeah, with violence. I guess I can thank them once. Thank you, socialists. <laughs> I'm glad I got to meet you. That's the only thing I'm thanking you for, by the way. Well, he, he was, uh, you know, he, he really just bought the ideas that were – behind uh, the union ideal. I mean, this is, we're talking about New Jersey in the 80s, you know, like, I mean, this is the single most unionized place of all time. Like, like the 7-Eleven has a union. Or oh, yeah, like no, yeah. seriously. Like every single, you know, I mean, because there's factories. So New Jersey is very, very similar to Detroit when Detroit was, you know, at its peak and functioning well. Like, I mean, there was, I mean, it's factories and industrial stuff. These are industrial places that are, um, you know, they, they, they had systems in place that worked for them to extract as much money as they could for their, their workers, you know, but the hard truth in a global world is that that drove their employers out and geography and that changed things, you know? So, uh, you know, even being a socialist, you know, there was definitely the, uh, a few things that he told me from a very early age. And, you know, I mean, this is a guy who is in negotiations with, you know, big three players and like i mean he basically was like hey man these people are i can get you a job in one of these factories i can do that yeah your dad wasn't a stupid man he saw the writing on the wall right this is not uh this is not sustainable and these people are hunting to diminish your return like for life he's like the only way that you can really uh get what you want out of the world is you own your own company you start your own thing i'm not going to put you in a factory yeah i can get you 100 grand a year and it'll be great for while it's great but then you're going to be tied into this and you should go do something else smart man smart man you know plus i was a techie and i this is before computers were a thing i'm not exactly sure how they became a thing for me but it just was and and that he really believed in technology changing everything because he was like at the forefront of seeing the robots taking the worker jobs and stuff and Basically, he's like, look, you got to focus on being a technology guy. I don't want you pushing buttons in a factory. I want you pushing buttons elsewhere, you know, and that's uh, 
that's pretty much what I focused on. Well, the truth of the matter is, in almost every way, robots and software are better than us. Yes. Period. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Almost and every way. I, I would, uh, if I could be a robot, I would love to be one, because then anytime some shit breaks, I can just replace the shit. Yeah, replace I mean, it. biological creatures are gross. There's goo and fluids and all kinds of... I love it all, but yeah. I would love to have some sort of internet in my head. Mm-hmm. I could take pictures... Yeah, it'd be. It'd be uh, I wouldn't have to sleep. You can get a lot more work done that way. It'd be cool. Oh, that would be awesome. I didn't even think about that. Yeah, see, man. Trans. What do they call it? Transhuman experience. Here we are talking about real estate and the transhuman experience. It's deep. For those who are interested, and you should be by now, you need to follow Tommy. Go to TommyDesmond.com. TommyDesmond.com. Imagine that. Follow him on Twitter's at Tommy Desmond. He managed to get his name too. You can also go to OaklandCountyInvestors.com or hit them up on Bigger Pockets. Go to BiggerPockets.com forward slash users forward slash Tommy Desmond. You, you did a lot of like research. I didn't give you all that stuff. You like went hunting. I did. That's impressive. It's my job, man. Wow. I got. I got. I can't just have you on here and not have people like, oh, that's a cool guy. I want to follow him. And like, oh, by the way, send him a postcard. To no, give yeah. him options. It's give, impressive. Give these people's options. So your father. Saw the writing on the wall, came to Detroit to move up the union ranks, and said, son, and I know your disc test, too, so you would have sucked as a union person. Just I like would have sucked in the military. I would have probably been not the best. Yeah. But I did get fired from a job for trying to unionize someone. That's whoa, whoa, good. That was when I was on the cruise ship. I tried to. They did you a favor. You tried to unionize I the I tried cruise to unionize ship? the uh, A&B workers, and A&B. that was, that was really workers? stupid. It didn't work at all, and they just fired me, and... There's only four Americans on the ship. They don't care what I said. They didn't even know what I was talking about. So, Like, oh, Union, have a nice day. Yeah, I'm going to retire from here and buy a farm. I'll be the richest man in my village after two years. And I didn't get that. You know, I was a kid, you know. Yeah. Didn't know any better. So. No. Yeah, the currency in other places. So did you graduate high school in Metro yeah. Detroit? Oh, yeah. I went to Notre Dame here. Um, I didn't actually, actually, I didn't graduate high school at all. This is kind of what happened. I found a Whoa. trick. How'd that happen? This was a trick. Um, I, I went to Catholic school for almost all of my educational upbringing. Um, and I figured out that, you know, there, there was a, back then there was a loophole with high school. I really got fed up being in high school because college had all the computer stuff, and that's what I was into. So I was like, all right, there's got to be a way. I mean, I, you know, I was at the point where I was going to computer classes and I was setting up everything for the teachers to then turn around and read lessons plans. I was like, this is really a waste of my energy. You know, I don't want to do this. I want to go and do some other stuff. So I figured out there was a uh, little bit of a semantic trick that you didn't need to graduate from high school to go to college and get a degree. You had to graduate from high school to graduate from college. At the time, the uh, the local community colleges didn't verify any of that information until after you had you apply for the degree. You know, now I'm they might have changed it, I don't know, but back then that was that was the thing. Like until until taking notes Huh? Maybe that maybe children you're taking notes maybe take, take notes this was well worth it because also what you get is when you take college classes you get high school credit for them so basically I left high school in the 10th grade because I could just go to college then I took all the classes I wanted I sent those all back to the high school to get credit for them 
but I just shaved myself off a couple years of having a genius. It was it worked really well. I ever I thought I was like awesome. And it's like you discovered gold. It was when you're yeah. Oh my 16, god, I'm like, done. Yeah, it was worth it. And then I got to like hang out with all the college girls and stuff, and that was a big deal because I was young and awesome, and you live forever then, and you don't care or think no, about things. I didn't care so, about anything. Yeah, it was like an '80s movie, like actually happening right there. You did it. Yeah, man, that's amazing. <laughs> That would have been so fun. I can't even tell you how miserable my public school experience was. Was it brutal? Well, just realizing that you're not that smart, but you're way smarter than all the teachers, (laughs) that's a bad feeling. (laughs) You know? I am not that smart. And then I realized, boy, these, I don't know how they find them. They just got stuck. I I didn't mind the school. Like, I liked learning. My biggest hang-ups were that, one, I was in religious school, but I was not from a particularly religious family. We are... uh, you know, I refer to myself as architecturally Catholic in that I like their buildings a lot. <laughs> um, you know, but as far as the rest of it, I have no particularly strong opinions in any way. And my dad didn't. You know, I remember a very a conversation with him when I was in the third or fourth grade when I had a question about something one of the nuns said because back then they hit you still. Like, yeah. And I I don't remember even the question, but basically it was just like you know I'm confused about the God thing or whatever, and he's like, kid, don't worry about none of that religious crap. You're in there to go to a good college. Like that moment that he said that, it like shifted a thought in my head where I was like, well, wait a minute, does that mean that the teachers don't actually know every single thing that they're? It just was like a a paradigm shift of like, huh? There's a man behind the curtain in all this. Your you father know? tipped his hand, and you saw you saw the cards. Yeah, and then that you know, and then that compounded with the fact that all the things I was really interested being you know computers, and we're talking about we're talking about computers that you know my first disk drive you had to it was a cassette tape, and you had to turn the computer on and push play at the exact same time for the machine to boot. Wow! So this is not like that's you even know, before Commodore sixty four. This was a Commodore PET. I remember it very specifically. Commodore PET. Yes. P-E-T, and I play Mr. Turtle on it, and you just draw lines with this dot, like, but it blew my mind apart. That was amazing. What is this? Mystery magic, you know? Frogger from uh, Atari? Oh, this is is way before Frogger, man. This is even before Frogger? (laughs) Wow. (laughs) This is is (laughs) proto-Frogger. So... This, This is what they use to make Frogger. Yeah. Yeah, so I mean, but I didn't get any of that. Like, I mean, that like th- those 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 two things created a rift between conventional education and the way that I wanted to do it, which has been a recurring problem. I think not just for me, but anybody entrepreneurial. I mean, I think I have a letter from my preschool somewhere. I think it's on my Facebook. There's a note from my preschool teacher that says, Tommy's really fun in class, but he always seems to think he has a better way and won't listen to the teacher. Yeah, he does have a better way. Don't <laughs> well, bitch. Better than a lot of ways, maybe yeah. not the best. But I should anyway. take I should take that back, but I'm not going to. Ouch. No, I'm not going to. Well anybody with their eyes open should realize just looking how bad public schools are. You know when the poor people of Detroit won't send their children to public schools and they'll actually take money that they don't have out of their own pocket and send them to private schools and or charter schools mm-hmm. that the idea of your unionized public schools is officially dead. Not because of some evil corporate thing, but because they suck at their job. It's a rough system. I don't know what the answer to education is, but I do know that it is ripe for disruption. Absolutely. And uh, the some of the I tools is... that I've seen are mine. I mean, when you look at what Khan Academy is doing and you look at... Udemy? I love dude, Udemy. Oh, my oh God. there's so many options. I mean, even yeah. uh, I mean, I've taken uh, iOS programming at Stanford University for free. 
on my iPad, that I'm going to use the iPad to learn how to write code for the iPad. I mean, that's that's mind-blowing stuff. You know? Stanford and Harvard have YouTube channels, by mm-hmm. the way. They put a ton of lectures up there. They also have podcasts. It's amazing. They have, yeah. If Stanford you look at iTunes U, it's either, I think it's 50,000 universities now have classes live on those. And you can, you can email the instructors. I, I did that when I was a kid. Uh, I went to a couple classes, but they didn't have structures for it. I actually just tricked my way in. Like I would get the books and the syllabus and follow along with what they were doing. And then if I had questions, I would email the instructors from Stanford or whatever and ask them questions and say, yeah, I'm one of your students in whatever lecture. And what's this, this, and this? And they'd tell me because they don't. They don't know who's in there or not. Who doesn't? Yeah, and who the hell's going to do that? Who's out there doing following along for fun and then asking questions? Like, I mean, you know, they didn't. So they they were really helpful. Like, I learned a lot of stuff, and they didn't realize that I was a seventeen year old kid in Detroit. <laughs> what would you have given to have Khan Academy or Udemy in the eighties? I mean, I would have killed for it. Oh, oh, it would have yeah. changed. It would have changed everything. I was so I, I was so fucking bored. I it was bored out of my was, mind. Yeah. Man. Yeah. I wasn't in the computers. I was in the butterflies and shit like that. So That's the craziest shit you could have said to me because I, I know you. You probably didn't see that coming. I, I didn't see that no. coming. And we were just out yesterday shooting shotguns at things and yeah. swearing. And That's way more fun. Now you just are telling me that you were into butterflies. And bugs. And bugs. I probably could have been a biology some way shape or form i was really into them i collected them you know little pins and stuff oh, like that I knew that, that was the thing that happened seriously wow. until i until i started feeling bad about killing them which i'm glad i stopped i take pictures of them now <laughs> but i used to have to i used to hound my parents to go to the library at school sucked teachers didn't know anything now you could probably go on khan academy for 80 bucks to get 16 years of oh, yeah. education on butterflies. It's amazing. Oh, yeah, you could, yeah. And then any questions you have, you can go and hunt stuff up and get all the... I mean, you're immediately in the discourse. You know, that was a big thing my pop did used to do is anytime we want to learn anything, he bought books. We had books everywhere. I mean, we had hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of books about it. So anytime we wanted to learn how to do something, it would just you'd go to the store and buy like half a dozen books on it. It's like that's we've got that option, but for free, and you don't have to move. And you just ask your freaking phone. My I phone know. has all of the sum total of all recorded human knowledge on it, and 90% of the traffic that goes across it is a Kardashian's butt. Yeah. Like, I mean, this is a sad state. Well, what the hell's going on? We are primates, my friend. Yeah, no, that's true. And we like butts. And and the reality is, is not much this technology would have been developed if it wasn't for porno Absolutely. making all that. So thank I you, guess porn we can't really complain. and the human ape desire for butts. Right here from an iPad, asking you questions, setting up a radio show for a thousand dollars to stream across the internet. That's disruption, it's right there. Crazy, yeah. It's fun disruption to do. is a wonderful thing. It is. I can't wait to to some more disruption. So. I hope you guys enjoy getting sidetracked. I imagine we're going to do this several times. I'm going to see if I can't get us a little back on track. So somehow you went from flipping flipping smokes to, uh, let's see, companies I've made. Streaming content distribution, real estate listing data aggregator, web to print engine sold. We can't say to who or whatever and all that. That's kind of cool. Social media network. 
online t-shirt designer, various retail dropship stores. Now, all of that was, like, old. you got to think. Like, I mean, that social media networking thing, that was, like, the we're biggest not mess ever. We're not young men. We're middle-aged men. Yes, we're, I'm, I'm yeah, pushing on the 40 mark. I'm For all the 18-year-olds listening, I know we're dating ourselves. But yeah. Everybody starts somewhere. Like, there was no, I mean, this is 2002, 2003 that we were, I mean, we didn't know what social media was. What we had was a DJ collective that uh, we needed to coordinate all of the DJs so everybody knew where everyone was playing and who had what music if we needed to trade stuff. This is for that electronic music for, for the that, kids. For that, for the, the kids like to swing to that stuff. <laughs> but that, that was how the initial concept came up. And then one of the guys who was a part of that, who has now passed away, but he's a, he was a great guy. He was almost like a, uh, a Steve Jobs level kind of uh, free thinker fellow. Wow. You know, his name was David Scott. Um, and he was really involved with Logic's House. He's a Canadian fella, and we worked on a bunch of stuff together. He ended up uh, becoming an adjunct professor of communications at the University of Jönköping in Sweden. And we went over. He went over there and was showing the software that he was what we were using, um, and it blew out the mind of all of the the technology professors at the time and they had something uh called science park science park was what it was called it was a business incubator socialist country so they it was a government funded business incubator where they would bring in projects from the college to you know develop them and this was and they had the eye of like you know steve jobs and a bunch of these big venture guys that would kind of watch see what was happening so uh he we got flown out there, me and a couple, one wow. other Canadian fella, and then there was a team of Swedes that were at the, you know, working on it. We didn't really know what we were building, um, and we kind of had these sessions where we'd all sit down and talk. You know, well, I mean, I would yell, and the Canadians would talk, and then the Swedes would politely sit in a row and raise their hand when it was their turn. It was a really weird cultural dynamic, but. Uh, you know, and they just watch us as we're jumping around, getting excited about how different things could work. And they just, it's not what they do there, you know. Like, So, uh, <laughs> you know, at, at the end of the day, you know, we, we, we twisted the thing a little bit to expand it and make it so it could be a system that foreign exchange students can use to stay in communication as they traveled around Europe. Uh, this is before Facebook or MySpace or really any of that stuff. I was going to say, it sounds an awful lot like a Facebook or well, something. Well, the reality was is that's exactly what we built. But... Um, you know, the, the caveat being that this was not we I we had never envisioned grandmas trading pictures of people I don't you know, think babies and it was not there. We didn't think of it. And our vision wasn't large enough. But uh, technologically we basically invented the exact same idea as a Facebook. There was a lot of people that did, I'm sure. It wasn't like it was us and Mark. That wasn't the way it was. But we were just doing it. We didn't know there was no name social media. It didn't exist. It wasn't until years later in retrospect that you realize Holy shit. That's what we were doing in 2004. We did a Facebook for DJs uh, before there was a Facebook. Yeah, but I mean the customer base, the target market was irrelevant. The technology was the same and we just you, there wasn't we you know, were there even digital before cameras? the internet had everything. Yeah, there were digital the cameras. This is right at the beginning of home digital cameras. It might have been, but that was yeah. not uh we weren't on that. I mean, this is YouTube wasn't really floating. Like, there was nothing. PHP had just come out, which is a scripting language that enabled a lot of this uh, this kind of technological development. But it was a rarity. It wasn't something that was everybody was doing. So now, don't let me, I don't think you would anyway, but I'm just going to say, don't let me try and get you to talk about something you can't talk about. But I did want to. It's okay. I edit these anyway. Yeah. These, uh, <laughs> web to print engine sold. So this is where you you wrote some code about web to print, 
There's there's a couple things that fit together yeah. here. Um, after the you're flipping code basically. Uh, no, no, that wasn't exactly what was happening. Okay, all right. Uh, what was happening was we had developed after the uh, the web the the social network came to no uh, no resolution. We didn't really go anywhere with it. Um, we came up with other ideas, you know, because I had just had my first son was born in 2004. So that's a paradigm shifting thing, too. You know, when you start, you know, every before that, everything was about the idea of doing the project. Like, I mean, there was no I really wasn't even concerned with money or anything like that. I mean, I, I was just a producer. I make stuff and that this is what I was interested in. We'll call you a code artist. It was, yeah, you know, I had good kung fu, you know, and that was pretty much what I was doing, was just messing with these things that there was, you know, it was new ways to do stuff. So then you met the fair-looking Katie. I did meet, I came back and I met my wife. Pretty easy on the eyes, I'd say. And everything shifted, you know, and, uh, you know, so 2004, when I came, I, I actually left to go to Science Park in Sweden three days after my son was born. Wow. And I was there for a couple weeks, and that was, you know, I kind of came to a head out there just because it wasn't, there was no direction to the project. It was an experiment, not a business model. And uh, at the end of the day, I was just like, look, I can't be messing around with all this stuff. I need to get in on something that's going to get me paid because yeah. I have people to feed now. It's way different. I got a baby at home now. Yeah. You know, and I before that, I had been making really good money selling stuff online, you know, but that was, again, when this was brand new. And then, you know, all of a sudden the world went global and India's doing the same stuff for next to no money. And like it just was the, the old models didn't work the way they used to work. You know, I was doing a lot of work in England and I lived in Canada. So I was getting paid pounds sterling, converted to U.S. dollar, converted to Canadian dollar back when the Canadian dollar was nothing. So it's like, I mean, I would work 20 or 30 hours and I'd make like eight grand. You know, so good deal. It was a good deal, you know, but that was over and I have babies now. But then so. somebody from Southeast Asia would do it for 20 bucks. Yeah, exactly. Hard to charge eight grand when they'll do it for 20 exactly. bucks. Exactly. Yeah. So the at the economy. end of the day. I was like, all right, well, we need to make a business that works here, you know, and I was doing freelance web development work, and I had a friend come back from the military, and he had joined uh, a, 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 not the infamous Blackwater contracting company, but a another lateral to that company, and he went, and he was just making ridiculous amounts of money, and he's like, I'm only going to do one contract, so let's take all the money that we can get and make into, you know, a company that, you know, what we had come to the conclusion was is that what's going to blow up is selling T-shirts on the Internet is going to be huge. And, again, this is before that had really been done, you know. turns out that selling T-shirts on the Internet is huge. It was yeah. huge, yeah. yeah it, it, it turned huge. out it was a massive business and it was phenomenal stuff. So uh, that, was the, that was the plan. We got all the printing equipment. So we had basically we were going to create a closed-door shop that sold online. Exclusively. Um, and what ended up actually happening was we got a uh, relationship with another existing print shop. And he's like, well, hey, I got a bunch of space in the back. You know, I mean, why don't we why don't you split? You, you get the back space. I'm not using it. You subsidize the rent, you know, and then we have customers that come in through the front, too. And you can get some side business that way. So we started this company that is uh, called New Voodoo, N-O-O-V-O-O-D-O-O. We thought we were very crafty. Very. And, uh, you know, the premise was is to create, um, you know, the funny thing was is most of the designs are uh, like Occupy 
Wall Street kind of designs, but this is before any of that was a thing. So it like they didn't, you know. Uh, we get the shop set up, and in a classic business failure maneuver, um, you know, I spent a lot of my day writing code for these systems to purchase online. You know, a designer, like a little flash designer, so they could do their artwork and all this stuff. Uh, as I'm doing that, um, customer orders started coming in through the print shop. So, in a clear lack of focus, like uh, Gary Keller says, the absence of focus, uh, I we deviated from our one thing, which is selling T-shirts online. Which is, I mean, in 2004, how could anyone make money doing that, right? Ten years ago, telling, oh, it's this crappy model, and we decided to just start selling T-shirts to the people who were walking in the door. We didn't decide; it just kind of happened. Because when there's business showing up right in your face, you're like, oh, okay, we can do that. It can be difficult to ignore. And over time, what happened is money that, in their hand. Hey, that, Tommy, that sidetracked us. Yeah. We got totally sidetracked. We forgot the brass ring of building an internet startup, and we find ourselves holding a custom screen print shop and um you know we were not set up to do that um that was we we, there was bad communication in the company basically i just made every mistake possible um you know we had uh, uh, the the other shop we were working through like they didn't necessarily have models that were like solid so we were mentoring under another facility that didn't really have a process underway so i've done that I mean, it's just it's it's what it's it's just one of the punches that you Rookie take. Mistake, you know. You know? Uh, at the end of the day, um, you know, we ended up crashing the whole thing into the dirt, um, and the only thing that was salvageable was the technolo- technological basis that was the original core of the business, and uh, that still was ended up being very worthwhile technology. So we had some assets in that. Um, and part of one of the elements was uh, the web to print. Web to print, inf- and you flipped it for, we'll say six figures. It was it was it was a well uh, it was a well sold property to a Fortune 500 company. It is yeah, basically. Yeah, we will go with that. That's pretty cool. I would like without failure, there is no progress. That's true. Failing in my experience, maybe success. someone's better than me, but I've failed a bunch of stuff. And I, you know. so you went from flipping smokes to flipping code. <laughs> To flipping shirts, how did you go? How did you get into real estate? Well, um, in the midst of all of that, after after the company crashed, actually, I've got all this on video that you should look at because it's really funny. We never did anything with it. It's sitting. We taped everything. We had we, we video blog before video blogs existed, and That's we have awesome. all of it sitting on dat tapes in my house. You should probably look through it and make something cool out of it. That would be really cool. Yeah, it's weird too because we had we had stuff when we, the DeQuinder cut when it was all funky. We got all kinds of cool stuff, but uh, anyway. Um, after that crashed, one of the, I did an interview with one of the guys when I was there, and one of the interviews was like, well, what happens if this company crashes? What happens then? And my response then was, well, how could it crash? I mean, if this doesn't work, then we just go back to my basement, and we still, like, it doesn't, a concept doesn't die because a building, you know, the power goes out on a building. Like, yeah. I mean, it, it dies because the people who... Uh, are driving that ship die. That's the only way that it dies. If you give up on it, then it's dead. But if you don't give up on it, there's no external force that can decide, except maybe the IRS, that you can't do that anymore. You know, So the idea was very true with New Voodoo. What happened when it died was it kept living, and I moved it to, I changed the model, and I moved it to a building in Troy, an office, and I tried to do it on the uh, basically as a facilitator. Then I didn't do any 
made the production. I had vendors at that point, and I knew the process. I still had phone calls coming in. People knew me from you know the place. So uh, yeah, you can't lose your network. Well, you kept the network going, yeah. you know, and and basically I kind of rode out from the ashes for a minute. Um, but that was right before Bear Stearns. <laughs> so I, I think the new voodoo closed uh, 2007, uh, November, and by uh, I took the month off for Christmas, and then uh, right in Jan- the beginning of January, I opened 248 Creative, which was the uh, evolved version of what new voodoo had been. Uh, and that it was working pretty well. We were we kept the clients, but we didn't have all the overhead. We didn't have all the infrastructure, and uh, it worked fine up until uh, the markets collapsed. Basically, when the whole recession began, and within one day, like everybody was just like, "No, no one's buying anything now for the remainder yeah. of the year." And it was like the summer happened, and it was just over. And uh, you know that company died too i mean it didn't die it still exists but it it ceased to become uh, a focused profitable entity uh and in the midst of all that um 2009 rolled around and i'm like man everything's gone to hell um real estate is exactly what i should get into everybody's flooding out of it you know everybody's running from real estate so horrifically because one of the things we had built i I was aware of the real estate world from building uh an early version of uh the mls which you know back in the day they used to uh, fax each other listings and the brokers would put the get the new faxes for the day of all the new houses that are for sale and punch holes in them put them in a three ring binder tear out all the ones from the three ring binder that no longer were for sale that was the mls that book and we had come up with a system to make that database driven on the internet and ooh, you know solutions for realtors.com and uh, that got me into that industry and seeing how it worked um, and nothing that we did is now what I mean this is very early stuff so nothing that we did then is at all existent still but it did make this industry known to me and as soon as I saw it fall apart I was like well it's property there's no way I mean, everybody freaks out when everything goes to crap. Like, it's going to forever be. And you see it. They write it. Like, it's going to be crap forever. Now the world's going to burn. It's Nero. I remember, yeah. But you still need a place to live. You're still, you, you still need a place to live. And I'm not saying that. I'm saying that, like, I mean, I, I didn't have any horses in that game. So I was unaffected. I mean, I got screwed from the collapse in general, but not in the same way that guys that had investments that were over leveraged or anything did. Yeah, I got I, I don't know anybody screwed. like that. I've yeah. never met anyone that <laughs> has ever had that scenario. But I wasn't in that boat, but I did see everybody getting the hell out. And I'm like, just by by supply and demand, everybody lives in a house, everybody works in a building. So I knew it was going to come back eventually. So 2009 is when I took my license. You want to talk about a depressed industry to enter, you get a real estate license in 2009. You know, Um when there's blood in the streets. <laughs> I mean, it, so that, that's what made me cause that, – that was the really big jump that happened where I jumped over uh, into the real estate planet. Yeah, and, and somewhere in there you had a few more kids too. I'm yeah, I'm now up to three and the house is full. We've got our perfect collection of wonderful children. And, and a dog. Uh, and a dog named Charlie. He's a boxer. He's a wonderful creature. Um, and my lovely wife, Catherine. Uh, I'm very lucky with all that. And they, the one, one thing that was huge in all this is that my wife, uh, you know, she's just like me. I mean, maybe not exactly like me in the, the specifics of entrepreneurialism, but she is very much um, 
will do the exact opposite thing that anyone tells her to do just based purely on the fact that she was told to do it. That'll, that'll help you a lot. It does help me a lot now, you know. Um, so, I mean, that she, she – and she, you know the big thing was that she never really understood what I did with computers. At the time she met me, I had a lot of money. And she knew that much, you know, and she didn't know what the hell. I mean, no one knew what I did. This is in the early 2000s and you're writing code. People are like, he does something with the computer. Like, they don't know what it is. And she never really understood it. But with real estate, she, her dad is a master finished carpenter. Her brother's a drywaller. Her cousin's an electrician. So she I, knew. I call them the Polish mafia. There's one for every trades. <laughs> you know, they got a trade for every whatever you know, Polish thing. mafia. <laughs> you know, my wife's Polish, so... Um, that she that she can handle that jump because after getting hit she got punched a lot of times and for a woman standing with a guy that like you know i mean to to just deal with the level of consistent failures like that's a hard thing for anybody to deal with you know um you know she and she had seen the benefit from it so she knew it was real but she had just taken a lot of hard hits. I mean, people say, I hear a lot of like, oh, employers don't care about this or that. And I was like, well, <laughs> I, we didn't go on a honeymoon because we had to make payroll, you know? So it's like all of those big things. Wait, wait, are, wait, wait, Tommy, Tommy. I thought you were <laughs> oppressing the poor. I'm holding it all down. You, yeah. you walked in every day to work and made sure I got my boot trampled on them. them you know? So they ruined their lives and reduced their wages. Wait. <laughs> Are you telling me that you withheld from yourself and your family to pay your employees? Oh, we we Bernie lost Sanders, almost Dolty all thief. of it. Yeah, yeah, to to make sure everybody was good. But they deserve. I mean, these are my friends too. I mean, at the, this was a little company I was running. You know, I mean, two of the guys that worked for me were like the best men in my wedding. Like, you know, these are really important people to me. So it was like it had to happen. But that's a hard thing. It's a hard pill for a woman to swallow. You know, Failure. my wife to swallow. Failure is a terrible thing, and yeah. it's hard on relationships. It I, is. It's very difficult. It is. And she totally could have bailed and walked. Yeah. Um, you know, but she didn't, and I'm lucky in that. Um, you know, but even having said that, I mean, I don't necessarily know if there's anything I could really do different because this is the way that I'm wired. And, uh, I mean, if she wasn't if she was going to bail, she would have had to because I would make a horrible employee. Yeah. You know, like there's no way for guys like us to really stop being guys like us and to swap over to faking it another way because we just – do bad at it like i mean we this is how i think this is how i'm wired and uh you know it's kind of one of those things where it's like if you hold on for the ride i'll share all of the benefit but it's a ride and that's the way it is so kind of what we're talking about is um i don't know if, if you're listening the disc test if you go to um, anthonyrobbins.com they'll let you take it for free mm-hmm. or you can buy it D-I-S-C. D-I-S-C. And uh, Tommy and I are both high D, high I. Yes. Low S, low C. (laughs) Which basically means... um, We're friendly assholes that don't hold detail well. Yes. (laughs) And we're difficult to manage. Yeah. Which can make keeping a job challenging. And we get bored quickly. Which is why we do a lot of stuff, and yeah. um, and there's few people like us. I mean, as, as the last we're time not afraid I've heard of risk. It, there's only three percent of the world is a high D, and only eleven percent of the world is a high I. Wow, I didn't so realize it was that low. It's a very very low amount. The majority of the world around us is is S and C variants. Um, and another way to look at these these tests are uh, active, passive, 
task-oriented, people-oriented. So a high D personality would be somebody who is active and task-oriented. A high I would be somebody who is active and person-oriented. A uh, high S would be somebody who is passive and task-oriented versus somebody who is passive and uh, people-oriented. That's kind of like... You know, and there's nothing wrong with these things. If you're curious, um, the idea behind a test like this is to play to your strengths mm-hmm. and not to your weaknesses. It's yeah. not a good or bad thing. It's not a right or wrong. It's who you are. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure that's always who you have to be, but it's definitely going to predominantly who you are, especially without thought. Yeah, they change. They're not a a permanent fixture. They can change based on life experiences. You You go to anthonyrobbins.com and look it up. It's the D-I-S-C, DISC test. It's a real short thing. It's entertaining. Like, it's a fun thing. My mom took it. My wife took it. Everybody's taking them just for shits and giggles. Well, Steve had me take the Colby test, too. So Let's, I know there's a bunch of different variations of this. This is just the one that uh, Keller Williams uses, and like I have, uh, I drank the Kool Aid there. So this is their tool, one of their two tools, and it's, uh, you know, it works for me. So yeah, that's well, it's who we are. I'm glad I took the test, so I realize what's wrong with me now and why I can't. It's yeah. nice to know why I struggle with some things, and I'm so good at other things. You mm-hmm. just think there's something wrong with you. It's just not playing to your strengths. Yeah. I used to feel bad about a lot of that. I remember, especially with New Voodoo, I spent many hours of my life trying to learn how to be a really great double-entry bookkeeper. Oh, my God, Until yeah. I just realized that, you know, the take, actually taking that test made me say, you know, maybe it's an external thing, but it's, it allows me to be like, all right, look, I suck at this. Higher high C. I will always suck at this. Yep. So I will find somebody who doesn't suck at this and wants to do this. with Mr. This or Mrs. High C. Exactly. Would you like a nice paying job? And, and they're excited to do it. Absolutely. And they so. do it better than you ever would ever ever will yeah i even learned that with code like i mean at the Stay end of the day lane, i was not people. an incredible programmer i was a very good programmer but that high d high i put me in a position where i was not i was not writing the true next level code but i was good enough to know that anybody i met that knew more than me was a really good programmer yeah. Which you got to know enough to be thing. dangerous. You got to know enough to be dangerous. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You, you need to know enough to know what's better than you, yeah. and then hunt for all the people that are better than you. Like, so you're like blood in the streets. The world is ending. It's never going to be the same. Oh God, this is the end of America. Sign me up at Keller Williams. I'm going to sell some shit. <laughs> is that exactly how it went? Or pretty uh, close? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm not, not going to lie. It was not It was not too far off. I have proof. I thought the same thing. You can go back and watch my videos on my YouTube yeah. channel. I said the same. Blood in the streets. Get in it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'd like to take this opportunity to rub in everybody's face how I was correct. <laughs> Would that be the D or the I? I'm nice. not sure. <laughs> nice. That, For all the, the times D. I'm wrong and I have to admit I'm wrong, I want to get the ones that I'm right, too. Nice. <laughs> you can't tell me it doesn't feel good. It does. It does, yes. Well, I, I always – I think property was a big thing when I was a kid, you know, because, I mean, this is – you're talking about – I mean, in a, in a housing project, nobody owns nobody owns nothing. No. Nobody owns a damn thing. These are all government-subsidized properties. Um you know, and that's, I mean, it's its not exactly how a lot of people would envision it. Like, I remember we didn't, there wasn't a ton of crime. I mean, it now has gotten very bad in that area, you know. But, I mean, we were there, you know, at the birth of the crack epidemic, basically. So things kind of turned worse while, you oh, know, man. Uh, when we were leaving. That but, had to uh, be ugly, huh? 
But the the whole idea of owning property uh, when you're looking at a place like Manhattan, you know, I mean, literally, when I looked out my back door of my Aunt Ruthie's house, it was the trade towers. Like, that was what was back there. You look out, and it's oh, twin towers. Like, um, so the idea that all of this property is, like, physically owned, like, I mean, it's just a whole paradigm that's like, wow, that's – imagine owning – you know, warehouses and strip malls and like somebody owns it like and, and they're making money off of it. And like I didn't know how it worked. I just knew I wanted to know how. And I used to say, I think when I was a kid, I wanted to be an architect. But I don't know if that's accurate because I didn't even know really what an architect was. I just knew it's something with buildings, you know. You wanted to own some shit. Yeah. My dad was not into any of this stuff. Like he, he was not a handy person. We had three tools. One was a table saw. One was a <laughs> uh, flathead screwdriver that was like this wide and two feet long and a black hammer. And if a project could not be accomplished with those three tools, it was not done or you hired another union person no it just didn't get done done? it was deferred maintenance the house has still got problems that he never fixed like that oh wow yeah but uh you know so it it turned out into a world where i just like this is something that i want to learn more about now that i understand assets i had purchased a property in the midst of all this i'd bought a house in troy this is 2009 this is 2006 2006 okay and but i survived like we didn't we we actually never went underwater because we put 50 percent down on the house and we got it i'm the guy with the stated income loan that was me I had a liar's loan. The legit stated income loan. And uh, I, well, yeah, we held on to it. You as know. odd as that might sound, a legit stated income loan. There it, were a few before was, they got ruined. It was largely legit. Yeah. <laughs> Mostly. You made the payments, right? We, yeah, we made, yeah, it's, it's paid and we never went underwater. You know, we rode the water mark for many years, but we never went under. And, uh, you know, I still have that house, and I probably will Look forever. at what a fucking great American you are, man. <laughs> you didn't walk away America. like everybody else. I paid my bills. <laughs> 50% down. You take a 3.5% loan. Well, not, not all of it was that great. I think I still have 6 and 7 eighths or something like yeah. that. Yeah. So no, that, that's the downside. Yeah. Well, But you kept it. Was that your first deal when you bought your house for your family? Was that your first real estate deal? That was my first real estate deal. Uh, that... Did you get a deal on it, or...? I thought I got a deal. I got it for under two hundred. I think I got it for. I know we're talking pre two thousand. This is pre two thousand. Yeah, so yeah, it was two thousand six. Bear in mind, people, pre two thousand. I got it with five percent concessions for two seventeen, which now that house in current Troy is worth about two somewhere between two sixty and two seventy. So I mean, that's not too bad. I no. didn't. I didn't get hit real hard. I didn't. What was get it worth at the time? You think? Did you pay full market value at the time? Or it was a little under because there was. Uh, there was it was a little dated, but nothing too brutal. I mean, if I was an investor now, I'd walk right all over it because it's you know bad uh, shag carpet and take down some panel board and the houses. And you got some seller concessions. And I got stuff. the seller concessions, and I didn't even know what any of that stuff really was. I had a very vague assumption about what all of this was. You at had the that time. Jersey training. Here yeah, it was a little odd. Uh, but I was selling one of my uh, the other guy that I own the print shop with was uh, buying a house, and his agent was there who actually ended up being my sponsor after he's the one to put it in my head when I bought that house. Uh, Tony Baloney, Leslie Nigerian. He's got a uh, Tony Baloney's. It's a restaurant over in Livonia. He still lives over there. I should call him. And uh, and I haven't talked to him in a while. Thank him. He's in my upline. Thank you for putting that real estate worm in my head. You like that? He did. He, he's like, you know, you should. Uh, he told me outright. He's like, well, you know, he's like, why the hell are you selling 
T-shirts. You know, what are you doing? Like, you could sell. You're a pretty good salesman. Like, you talk. Well, what the hell are you doing selling this? Why don't you sell houses? And I'm like, yeah, you know, sell houses. It just sounds like kind of uh, when you're in the mire of of writing code and selling T-shirts. It's just like, yeah, I'll put on a tuxedo with you and go sell houses, bro. Like, it seems so different, but it's really not. That's the reality of it. Is that you selling know, is selling. He's right. Like, I spent all of the same energy trying to track down these people to buy some custom-printed pens. And it's like, well, why the hell didn't I just try and sell them a house? It's yeah. like, the pens are five grand. The house is 500 <laughs> So um, he, he was right. He's still in my upline now. Um, we should probably, should probably give him a call. He, now he's got Joe Delia and all these shooters in his downline. He's gonna have to. Uh, he's going to have to pay up. I'm coming for you, Tony. Tony Baloney. <laughs> he likes Jameson. <laughs> I recommend the big bottle. Yeah. Don't be coming with that little bottle. <laughs> Grab the big bottle and then say you're welcome. <laughs> for those listening or having a good time, I am. Go to TommyDesmond.com or go ahead and hit him up on Twitter, at TommyDesmond. Or if you kind of like the the blogging and the social networking part, go to biggerpockets.com forward slash users forward slash Tommy Desmond. Or you can go to oaklandcountyinvestors.com. I'm, I'm pretty consistent at least. Yes, you are. So, so your first deal was obviously your, your house for your family. What was your first, what was your, I guess it would be your second deal. What would be your second deal after that? Because when you start, you became an agent. You didn't buy your house as an agent, but you became an agent. At some point in time, you said, okay, I'm going to do it. And then you were doing it, and then you realized it would work. Mm-hmm. There's, what, what did that look like? Well, I have two – I would say there's two levels to that. There's the first level of being an agent and facilitating it for other people, which I would still consider investment deals, even though I wasn't – it wasn't my money and I wasn't possessing the property. Did you get a commission, sir? I got a commission. That would be a deal. That would be a deal. So I, what you know at the time was hot stuff was short sales. They were going nuts. Everybody, there were short sales everywhere. And we had uh, – I was exposed – we talked about this yesterday to – Law firm. I was an outsider at the time. It was a title company that had a whole infrastructure set up for handling short sales, and all I had to do was find people whose houses were underwater, which was everyone, yeah. and then I would That's bring them to the title company who would do all the work with the bank, and I would facilitate the deals. And that's how I started knowing about the investor circuit and like saying, "All right, hey, there's these guys who still have their money. They didn't get totally blown out." And uh, I think that I, there was a little bit of benefit for being on the East Coast. Um, in that I've, I've always had access to investor networks that are outside of just the localized area. I know a lot of people were very Detroit-centric, uh, you know, and then when everybody lost their butt, like, there was all the money was internal. They didn't have outside places to go. It's a global economy, people. So, yeah, there was, there was more contacts of people that were willing to buy houses for very low amounts. And, uh, you know, I was never – I was, didn't really work in the city of Detroit, which I know is like a sin to say. I don't, everybody's supposed to pretend that they've been in it's love okay. with Detroit forever. But it's a shit pit. I was working out here. I was working out. I'm in Oakland County, um, you know, and I, I this is the areas that I, I knew, and these are the areas that I was working in. So there was a little bit more to sell. It was very hard to sell Detroit before this recent renaissance. Uh, now everybody's on board for the big win. You know, it's easy to get money for deals over here, but uh, this was not at all going to be the case then. Yeah, I so. should say, too, uh, Detroit is a shit pit, but I still love it. But I don't have to love it and then pretend it's not something... 
I, I think you know? it seems like there's a zero-sum game happening where yeah. it's like either you it's, – it's almost like a global state of Don't America. Don't talk bad about it, Everything's man. binary. It's either you yeah. absolutely hate things completely and you're afraid of them or you're 100% in love with them. Yeah. And it's like as an investor, you kind of have to – or a thinking person in general, you kind of have to see some shades of gray. Yeah. Like there is a lot of benefit in a lot of places. And I do believe – you know, I got to see – uh, Lower East Side Manhattan during the crap, crack ep- crap academi- epidemic, the crack epidemic. Say um, that ten times in a row fast. I'll just edit I don't think I this out that. later, so that's not <laughs> awesome. But I mean, if you look at what was happening there, like I think Ghostbusters, the movie was a great example. Like they have this picture of this firehouse that nobody wants, and they get for nothing because nobody wants this piece of property, and they build the Ghostbusters headquarters. Like that piece of property is worth twelve million dollars now, yeah. and there is no part of Manhattan nobody. The whole wants. skyline's. Comp- I mean, it's amazing. It's, I mean, and so that, but back then, some of the most expensive real estate in the world. In the world. In the world. In the if world. not the most expensive. Like I mean, this is the top of the food chain, and that was nobody wanted it in the eighties because. It was there were guys on crack walking around with AK forty sevens, you know. And uh, so when people tell me like, oh, especially people that used to live in Detroit and now have left, they're like, there's no way it can ever come back. It's like, no, it has the everything can come back. And a given amount of time, I'm sure it will. The question is, is how many dead pilgrims are going to be on the side of the road before that's the case, you know? Um, so anyway, because of that, like, I mean, right now, uh, I'm still, I'm on this side because this is where my networks are. This is what I know, um, you know, and if you don't know what you're doing in the city of Detroit intimately, it will chew on you and spit you out so rapidly. I will say something different. I say, even if you know what you're doing. It might not matter. Yeah. Brent, Brent Maxwell, who's going to be a guest on my show next mm-hmm. week. He says, He's a great guy, yeah. Buy 10, get 8. That's what he says about Detroit. Buy 10, get 8. Mm-hmm. That's very true. That's, buy ten houses, yeah. and at the end of the day, you'll probably have eight, and I say sometimes seven. And you'll probably have lost at least one set of crew tools yeah. in the process, yeah. and you're going to be buying air conditioning condensers and like. I mean, but that doesn't mean that there's not opportunity. There Absolutely. is. But that's there just is the whole model. You yeah, know? you just have to be cognizant of the environment yeah. you're working in. Yeah, the risks that are there. I mean, it is a transitioning community, and there's mm-hmm. still a lot of transition to go. I'd say at least ten more years. It is changing. It is getting a lot better, too. Yeah. But it still sucks in most places. It's really the infrastructure. I mean, it's very easy to point at Midtown or Corktown and talk about how wonderful it is. Look at the rest of it, yeah. There's a lot of infrastructure underneath all that that needs a lot of help. Oh, yeah. That's that's a big deal, you know. But it's doable. Billions. Well, of course it's doable. So what what are you working on, actually? Should we pause and check things? So that's pretty cool. So you kind of got your start in short sales, but uh, what are you working on now? Uh, well, I mean, the, it wasn't as smooth as uh, it sounds. Like uh, I swapped over, swapped to real estate, and then I'm doing real estate full time all the time. Then um, it was definitely still turbulent times, and I was uh, new and untrained, so there was a lot of uh, you know hit or miss. And I was still had my toes into other stuff. I still was you know. Uh, in the print world somewhat i had a couple different internet projects that were generating money so i was uh unfocused but diddling in a couple different worlds you know and uh the the full we'll call it testing the waters i was i was experimenting because i mean real estate it really does you know they say when you start with sales it's like oh well nobody knows what you don't know so you still know more than most people as an agent even if you don't really know much um but i'm not really that kind of person like i uh I, I need to know uh, 
technical elements of what's going on in the business. And if I have absences in my knowledge base, it makes me not confident enough to really uh, deliver expertise because I know in my heart I'm not an expert. So I was kind of like I was doing deals, but uh, I wasn't, you know, I knew that I was handing these deals off to another company that was facilitating them. And I was basically like, you know, a salesman, you know, and uh, it really the, it, it catalyzed I moved to the Royal Oak office because that was where my print shop was in Royal Oak. And uh, one of my major motivations was I'm going to start selling these real estate agents print work. You know, so I was like, I'll move to the office that's close <laughs> to my print shop. And yeah. like, hey, you know, these agents are, are, a, are a target market in and of themselves, you know, seeing how much that they were spending on doing different things. Um, because predominantly my print work was focused on counterculture bands and stuff like that, cool kid stuff. Like, Your electronic music. Yeah, well, not just electronic. I mean, it was, you know, every, it was, it was a mix of... Whoever like, had money, right? All the bands, all the, but it was all that. It was all like the, the cool kid stuff. I wasn't doing a whole lot of print work for like Fortune 500 companies, you know. So uh, anyway, I, I go over to the Keller Williams in Royal Oak and... Uh, I met, they, they, there was some leadership shakeups, and they recorrect, they changed the office. Keller Williams International implemented some changes, and they put a whole new team in there. Um, but before it had transitioned, you know, I was there for the old guard, and I was introduced to the concept of a productivity coach. Hmm. And I met uh, one of the coolest people I've ever met in my life. Her name is Sherry Swift, and she is a productivity coach for the Royal Oak office, and now she's for many offices. Um, but Joe loves her, talks about her all the time. She's a ninja, you know. Uh, the woman is uh, just very good. And I had never had an education from somebody that was more than academic. And this is the first time I had been uh, brought into a culture, you know, and I'm very much a drinker of the Keller Williams Kool-Aid in that um, their culture is very much centered around growth. It is centered around uh, being very honest with yourself, making clear goals and decisions about what you do as opposed to arbitrarily, you know, having life happen to you. Is that really Kool-Aid though, or is that just reality? I think it's reality. I think it's you know, reality But too. I mean, I think the way that, you know, if you, if you look at it compared, the model compared to other brokerages, it was absent from so many other brokerages that to see it, you know, Keller Williams people almost get like this uh, cult stereotype because they're so into so much, some of this stuff. But I mean, you can't lie with result. You can't fudge the results. I mean, within 30 years, they dominated real estate. They went from being nowhere in Austin to being the largest real estate company in North America. First, second, and third get trophies. Everybody else goes home empty-handed with a fucking broken heart. That's the way it works. <laughs> That's hard truth. That's know? the way it works, people. Get over it. You know, so at the end of the pays day... pays to be a winner. Like, what, what happened when I went to this office to sell them stuff is they just sold me real estate. And they were like, look, why don't you commit? Because if you are got your hand in all these different pies, why don't you focus? That's a and, great question. And That is a great question. How'd they ask it? They're just like, what are you doing? How'd that go? Well, I mean, it, it kind of came from two directions. One, my partner at the time had, uh, you know, on the, in the print side, he had an idea for what he wanted Um you know, but it was again a made in the garage concept. It was not. Uh, it did not follow an existing model. It was the invention of a model, but there was not a supreme existent success condition already in place to model. Like I mean, they were like we're inventing everything, and I'd done that a few times, uh, and it didn't always work out awesome. Inventing's so, difficult. 
that was, you know, basically talking to this coach, you know, she wanted to know, I mean, Sherry is, like I said, she cuts right through all the crap. Let's talk about numbers. How many people you call in? What's your database look like? She's running down the list of all what should be, at least in the KW world, is sales 101. But these are not things that anybody really has ever taught me before that. I never heard it directly. So I would, I would split my days between going you know, to diddle around in real estate and then go into the print shop. And, you know, at the end of the day, it was really just a stark thing of like, all right, look, you know, put all your eggs in one basket and watch that basket kind of is the idea. And the more I started going to their training, at first it was Ignite. They had the Ignite program. Um, And it really, it it came to a head when I went to Family Reunion, which is a, a a yearly conference that Keller Williams has that is, I mean, if, if KW is a cult, this is like Burning Man. You know, <laughs> Burning there is there Burning is, Man for Keller Williams. Seriously, there are 30,000 real estate agents deploy on a random city and they just have these breakout sessions, three days, four or five, I don't even know how many days it is, days and days of marathon sessions where uh, there are just classes on top of classes and everybody has to coordinate who is going to do what class so they can all share the information. And I mean, it's like, it really opens your eyes. When you go, when you're in a group of, you know, like I said, 30,000 agents and there are hundreds of multimillionaire producer people that you're talking to. That's a paradigm shift right there. You know, and then, yeah, and then we've got what we call the Red Book, the Millionaire Real Estate Agent, which is the core of the model on how they roll. And and all of their discussions were all relative to how our businesses relate to the model. And this is model is not something that, like, Gary Keller went into his closet one day and wrote while he was high. That's not what this was. This was a studied anthology of all of the models of different agents and they cut through all of their crap figured out what everybody was doing similarly and created this uh, numeric model about exactly what you're supposed to do to get results a blueprint for success right yeah you know and this is i mean follow the clues that other people have left to success and uh you know i just never thought about it because when i was a kid that was the point of entrepreneurialism was that you were the pirate charging out into the world but then that's a little hard man you know it's, you get all the arrows in the front instead of the exactly because yeah. i'd taken some of those arrows yeah. at that point i'm like all right you know i've kind of grown up from that idea and like you know yeah, there's people that can do this better than me, and let's take a look at what they're doing and not reinvent the wheel. After you know what the how the game gets played, then you have the right to start disassembling it and restructuring it and doing it your own way because you've already had the success and you can you know judge for yourself how to modify it. But up until that point, I hadn't really had that success. The successes I had were haphazard accidents, you know. And um, similar here. And if you're listening, I don't if you know and I don't know how you would know this. I just don't want to piss all over it. <laughs> if you know you're a Steve Jobs, don't don't take this advice. But you have to realize at some point you grow up and realize I'm no Steve Jobs. Well you would have known by I'm the no time Bill you were Gates. eighteen and you had already made a million yep. dollars. I'm like, no Bill Gates, I'm yeah. no Steve Jobs. Yeah. They're, as smart as I am. There are probably millions of people who can do everything better than me. Exactly. Period. Into report, and you admit that you become an adult, mm-hmm. and then you find successful people and you copy what they do. Totally. That's a way I, smarter I way to do it, and that's what Keller Williams did, and that's um, they at least were the catalyst for me to see that as an option. And uh, you know, basically, that was that was the deciding point. Once after I came back from that, I was like, all right, 
you know, all bets off. This is the thing I'm going to focus on. And then through, you know, work with Sherry, and at the time I was a member of what we call the ALC in, uh, in Keller Williams. It's the Agent Leadership Council. And each one of the offices are run by basically a, a group of the agents who decide on policy for the office, as long as it aligns with the model of how a KW should run. Um, and I had been involved in that for a couple of years as the tech chairman for Royal Oak's office. Um, you know, but that support that I got from Sherry and the rest of that team and seeing all those people progress, I mean, it, it, it's, it's basically like a drug, but, you know, success drug. Success blueprint. Like, yeah, that's better. Yeah. So I like success blueprint. Yeah. That's, that. that's less. When was that? When did you, when did you fully commit? Uh, to when I dropped everything else was 2012. Okay. I'd actually already, then I had met you. When did, when did we meet? Was it 2012? When did you start coming to Renegade Detroit Investors? Uh, I had come probably when I was in the short sale. The first time I had ever gone, you were at the Peking House in Royal Oak. Man, that was a long time ago. So I don't know when that was, but. That was probably, that was in 2008, dude. It was right. It had to be probably right around when I was making yeah. the jump into maybe a little bit of 2009. I think February 2009 is when we moved to um, Ferndale as the okay. house. Um, yeah, well. refused to renew our contract. Basically, <laughs> well, I- renovations that they were going to do that they magically never did. I don't know why the guy just tell us to fuck off and, <laughs> or charge us more money. They didn't. They didn't like us. They wanted us to leave, so they talk about imagining taking too much table space. And I guess. Drink. Yeah, you know, you know, buy. We bought a lot. We spent like seven hundred, eight hundred dollars there every meeting. But I, I assume they can get more. But so we moved from there. Wow, I didn't realize I knew you that long. That's amazing. So 2012, you're like, I'm all in. 2012 was when, that's when I had like the tools and the model to realize uh, I was, I mean, I thought I was all in before that, but I also like, you know, had my, my foot on the base over here. Like I'm going to steal second eventually, you know, but after seeing all of the success, seeing the other models, um, you know, seeing the, I mean, some of the people that I was engaging with, I mean, these guys are bringing in numbers that were like, how much, you know, like in real estate to make a million dollars in your pocket, you know, you need relatively low investment comparatively to like, if you want to make a million dollars to put in your pocket with a print shop, you're buying like $12 million worth of equipment. A lot of equipment. You yeah. Know. It's definitely low. Yeah. Low startup costs. Yeah, exactly. And you're not risking much of your own money besides some licensing fees. Some Which MLS is, I mean, fees. super minimal gas you know? for, yeah. for as far as starting a business is concerned. It's you pretty- could buy a brand new Escalade. And all the suits for your wardrobe still be nowhere near the cost of starting up a legitimate brick and mortar manufacturing business, like um, which I didn't do any of that, but yeah, no, it ad- it adds up. So I know you own some residential real estate and some commercial stuff too. How did you how did you get into that, and how how's that stuff working for you? Um, good. Uh, I mean, basically, I, I went. Uh, you know, I, I was thinking. Initially, one of my main ideas was to flip property again because I had access to tradespeople and it was something me and my wife were going to do together. So rehabbing was uh, the hotness, you know, and we started buying property and flipping it. Um, I had already facilitated uh, flips for other people. So I had been doing basically project managing, finding deals, project managing deals for people uh, and and doing flips that were not my own. and then I 
made the jump and we actually started to purchase and flip our own. I personally, I like HUD a lot at the time, uh, buying houses off HUD. Like I had a really good system for it. And uh, it was just, it was like almost like a hobby. You know, some people go on Amazon and look at the shoes they want. I'd go on the HUD store and, you know, drink, like a, drink a Jameson's. HUDstore.com. Yeah, HUD home a little store. drink, yeah. a little clicky click. It was great, you know. Yeah. Well, because as an agent, you can put the bids in, you know, too. So, like, uh, it was it was just a really good model, and I was getting good properties. Uh, the the big transition mentally happened for me when I think it was what was it two thousand and uh, I don't even know what year it was. Probably two thousand ten, eleven. Uh, anyway, we we basically flipped one, and uh, it was a house in Troy. And we sold it. We made a really good turn on it. I think we bought it off HUD for like seventy, and we put like fifteen into it. We sold it for like one fifty. I mean, it was a really Damn. good. It was a good number. Good paycheck. Uh, and it was. But at the same time, I started do. I was renting properties, acting as the uh, selling agent, listing agent on the rental side for other investors that I knew. And you know, I'm seeing the numbers that these people are pulling in for the rentals, and it's like, well, they're getting sixteen hundred bucks a month for that house. It was the first time I got a big check out of a flip that I wasn't happy about it. And I was like, well, I just made all the money I'm ever going to make off that house. And it's here. And I've just spent it. In a tax disadvantaged way. In a tax disadvantaged way, because actually we did sell that one in less than a year. So we didn't even get the good capital gains numbers. Like, I mean, it was... The idea of a flip, flipping in in over a year, I don't know if that'd be considered a flip. I mean... No, it's that that year marker is where you're basically at the, you know, the long term, you know, but plus that's how long... Now lenders are doing six months, but at the time, like that year mark was that was your golden refi point, you know, and it was really like when that hit me, it was like, well, I could have waited another month, refinanced that equity out of the property, had my money back to do another one and still had the property and I'd be making 700 bucks a month cash flow on it, covering the note and like this place would be rented forever. You know, I'd be able to hold on to this property. Um, I've talked about it a lot, but uh, one of the books I recommend all the time pointing out how disadvantaged flipping is and wholesaling, not that I don't think you shouldn't do it. It's just not highest and best use. Not always. In the beginning, you need to make money, and you should always be making money. But if you get the Millionaire Real Estate Investor by Gary Keller, start to sell you will at pitch. least see the best argument for this. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to say you should or shouldn't. I'll never say that. You'll see the best argument for buy and hold. Mm-hmm. Um, That's a great book. And great. honestly, you know, the funny thing about and this is, goes out to all the Keller Williams agents who are not doing this. We talk a lot about that red book, The Millionaire Real Estate Agent. They very, very little conversations had about the millionaire real estate investor. And especially in our area, we have Wendy Patton is in – she's a case study in the, in the millionaire real estate investor Huge. book. And she's here. She's, she's you know in basically our sister office. So like we've got these people. And the point of the way they set those two books up was as they were saying, this is how you make your money with the red book. This, this is, is what you, you do, do with, with your, your money, money with Absolutely. the blue book. Yeah. And we don't. There's not enough education on that, you know, and that's a lot of investors you hear online, like bigger pockets are like, well, I need an investor friendly agent. They don't realize that they're disconnected worlds. Like, I mean, there are agents, I've talked to agents who are very high producers who are wholesaling deals and they don't know what wholesaling is. Like, they think they invented it. Like, hey, I got a guy that I sell these to. And it's like, no, that you're wholesaling. You're wholesaling. No, no, I'm doing this thing. I was like, yeah, that's called wholesaling. We have a model for that. It's not like you made that up. Like, uh, 
So, the, yeah, I advise every agent, if they haven't, to read these things and start investing our money where our mouths are. You know? Kind of leads me to my question. I did get a question from Mr. Alton Williams. Okay. I know Alton. Yeah. For someone just getting into the business that is looking to invest and run a strong agency business, strong, where would he suggest they start? On the agent side, if that's what he's referring I to. I believe that is what he's referring um, to. Well, I mean, you know, my, my agent kung fu uh, is not as strong as someone like Joe Delia, who is an absolute shooter. Uh, I've got a very good niche. I focus on uh, on my retail. I refer to it as my retail real estate agent business. Uh, I focus on basically my city. I live in Troy, and I... I list property in Troy, specifically Northwest Troy, but I do all over the city. Um, and my my best money is on hyper-localizing all of your efforts. Um, there's so diff- pick a farm. Pick, pick a farm and embed yourself in the community. I mean, it's not just a fact of like you show up and you, you know, hand the donuts out and that's it. You go home. I mean, you really have the opportunity to embed yourself in the community and then be engaged in it. Um, guys like Jim Schaefer, who is the OP at my office. I mean, he's a great guy and he has got so much community access in, in the city of Ferndale and now the city of Royal Oak that, those relationships are, while they might take longer to build and you're going to spend more time up front, you're not going to see big paychecks that you can throw around up front. Over time, those relationships built are going to be much harder for anybody to shoot holes in. It'd be very difficult for somebody to come to Ferndale and knock Jim Schaefer off his pedestal because he's so embedded in that community. And he rightfully should be because he legitimately is an asset to that city. So by it's not a trick about how you can get your way into some listings. It's how much benefit can you provide. By default, you're going to get the reach and the access. What are and, we talking about here? Like join the PTA or yeah, get on I mean, the zoning board thing, like you did? Whatever, um, whatever, your, whatever your world is, engage with it. Coach a, a soccer way. team, something like that. If you've got kids, yeah, why aren't you at the PA, PTA meeting? You yeah. know, like why aren't you talking to the people, the parents that you're around? If you're in gymnastics, why aren't you one of the parents that helps coordinate the pizza party? You know, like those, those ways of building trust and rapport go beyond the the BS sales tricks of like looking at the pictures on the wall. Oh, you like squash? I used to play squash too. Like that is superficial and can be shot holes in rapidly. When you show up as somebody who is an asset to the community consistently, you don't have to sell rapport because it's defaulted into you and the way that you interact with the community. So for me, what that was, was engaging with my kids school you know i got three kids and uh you know i engage with their school pretty consistently uh i'm involved with the city itself i i work as a board member for the zoning board of appeals uh i'm involved in some of the there's a program we have called sharps which is uh you know changing light bulbs and stuff for the elderly who might not be able to do it themselves or disabled people i mean these are small things that require very little uh time investment well they're small things to you but they're huge well, they're things, small things to, the to people. everybody yeah but to the people you're helping they're huge oh yeah things. that's yeah. what i mean that's like, the value you don't i mean you're not contributing huge amounts of time and like honestly cities are starving even a city like troy which is like one of the best run cities i've ever seen um 
like they are hurting for people to engage in the civic process. We have a lot of people who will go on Facebook and they'll, you know, tell you all about their beliefs of gay marriage or whatever, but that's easy stuff. Like they're clicking a button and they're sharing a picture, but we need more people to get up from the computer and then go into their communities and affect positive change within them and do a thing. You know, you can't just talk about a thing and assume that something has been done, you know, and even just walking around and parading places isn't fixing the issues in a community. You know, like there are needs that can be met. And uh, I think if you come from contribution, which is a Sherry Swift quote, you know, I don't know if it's Sherry or one of her John Maxwell mentors. Come from contribution. How can anything that you're doing really get shot apart? Because if that's the intention, even if you don't get a sale out of it, you still made benefit. Made friends, too. You, yeah. So, I mean, there's no lose You, can, you can't lose your network if when you build your network correctly. If, it, if it's built on solid stuff, there's no way to lose it. Because you, in order to lose something, it has to be because you slid something shifty around the side. How large should your farm area be, or does, does that matter? Uh, well... I don't know. I mean, for me, the area that I'm working is basically the uh, is, is a 10-square-mile pocket, um, but the majority of that effort goes into about 5 square miles of okay. that 10-square-mile pocket. So somewhere um, between 5 and 10 square miles. Well, for I, I would say that it's dependent. Uh, there is no hard and fast number, although I'm sure there is a metric somewhere at KW for exactly how big that should be to start. But it's going to be a result of how how smooth your team is, how many people are on your team, how much space you can cover, how many leads you can field. I think Alton is probably on his own. He's, it sounds like for someone just getting in the business, he's looking to run a strong. So pick a farm area. And lead with revenue is what you do. However much you can afford to hit consistently. Consistently. Every month. Meaning if he only has 200 bucks create a plan and just for only hit the same 200 i mean you know you don't want to take ten thousand people and then try and get all ten thousand of them if you can only afford to talk to two thousand make sure you keep talking to two thousand the same two thousand people because the goal point. is to get them to see you eight or nine times <coughs> eight, eight is our magic number we have what we call the eight by eight and like that you want to get within the first eight weeks those eight contacts there are eight touches to them so they embed you in their mind and then from there you just have to keep the momentum going you know what about um, mentorship or something? Because I don't know if, who he's with. I know he's a real estate agent, but um, he can. Uh, it, Alton, whoever you're working for, there should be some sort of like you have a productivity coach at Keller mm-hmm. Williams. Um, if you went in and you asked and you, you you wanted to join somebody's team, somebody would probably let you join on their team. Oh, sure, kind of like an apprenticeship program, sure. something yeah. like that. So, but so you're saying. Pick an area, pick a farm area, embed yourself into it, add as much value as you possibly can and commit fully, and you can't help but have good results. And don't be afraid to talk about it. I, you know, that's another phrase I use is don't be a secret agent, yeah. you know, and it's like there's a lot of that, you know, because, I mean, in general, I know that salespeople get bad reps for a lot, but, and it's really easy when you're, especially when you're new to convince yourself that, hey, you know, am I just sliding in here and trying to make money off people's transactions? But until you actually come up against 
like an actual case of injustice and then you solve it for somebody, you don't fully understand how much you're affecting lives for people. I had one one transaction in particular that was brutal, um, you know, and I won't, no names, no addresses or anything, but basically this, some schmuck with some no-name, you know, real estate company, his broker was in Traverse City, but he had a house listed here in Troy that this guy, I don't even know where he found a dot matrix printer, but he found one and he printed his sign and wow. glued it to a for sale by owner sign that he got from Home Depot and it was stuck in their lawn and they, he had this ridiculous listing contract that basically just stripped out any protections for the homeowners completely and eliminated all dates it wasn't even a legal contract because it was no end date it was like this guy basically is just like i'm allowed to sell your house you can't say nothing about it forever and he didn't even list it, it wasn't on the mls he put it on zillow and he harvested it wasn't listed he wasn't he was not on our board he couldn't list it and he basically just used this to harvest buyers he wouldn't let anyone else show it no other agents could show it he just kept this thing out it was off a main road in a good area in troy and he just harvested buyers and they'd show up to look at it and he'd take them and buy sell them another house a year he had these people and these people were in a bad health scenario where basically one more winter and they could die you know they had a house in uh down in the south down south where it's nice and warm it was already paid for and they were just waiting to go down there i mean this guy was an old vietnam vet and this guy had pulled down all the vietnam vets flags and threw them in the garbage in front of them like and you know that's like you know i mean you get shot for something like that and uh people get mad when you mess with the flags and it was serious like they seriously were like this guy was dragging them through the coals and then like so i started helping them you know, and they were under contract, so there was nothing, you know, I had to, there were things that needed to be done before we could, it, it was a multi-stage process to help them. You know, so I, with the help of my broker, we had some cease and desist letters drafted up to explain that, hey, look, this contract is invalid, we're backing out. This guy responded with these horrific fake letters from some no-name, you know, uh, attorney in wherever, Farmington Hills. And I mean, now, for us, we're used to seeing this stuff, so we're like, what? That's not... None of this is real. For but a to, layman, it's scary. To a yeah. layman who is like a you know, eighty year old unhealthy people, they're like, oh my god, the lawyers are coming. So we just had an actual law firm have a response, and at the end of the day, they just got booted. They disappeared. We had the house sold, and they closed on it, and they we saved their freaking lives. You know, they sent me a card after that was all written up about you know how, uh, you know how we had affected them and like how they have a totally different life now and she even tried to send me an extra thousand bucks off the side you know and i didn't do that because i'm not supposed to but like uh unnecessary to right you know but i mean just the whole concept of it like it really brings like the stuff that you hear in some of these training classes into the reality of like hey man like there are people getting screwed there are predators out there doing really brutal stuff to people who can't fight back and like that, there's some benefits to the high d personality because it's like no fuck you man you can't do any of that you're making this shit all up none of this is real and like that was uh that was the first time i got to do that it's happened several times in my career but that was like the first time i was like holy crap man like this was cool you like, know you've done your job correctly when they're trying to give you more money than you agreed to in the beginning that's yeah. that's a good sign well, That's it definitely made me think that, hey, well, no, we're not milking anybody at anything. This is a legit service. This other guy was. We're not. Like, this was a legitimate 
And that's that's my idea of come from contribution. If that's always at the core of what you're trying to do, I don't, I don't want to nickel and dime anybody by squeezing them into contracts. I got a thing. If you want to rip up my contract, you can rip it up. If you want to don't want to list your house with me, yeah, we'll tear, tear it up. That's fine. Now, granted, you're not allowed to sell to the people I just showed it to a week later. So there's protections for that. But if your goal is, like, hey, never mind. I don't want to sell my house. I don't want you to sell. I don't like you. I'm not going to try and lock you in and sue you over stuff. And like that's just because if you nickel and dime every single deal, you're missing the overall point. You see it with joint venture partners all the time where, you know, two guys will get in on a deal and instead of like taking the idea of how this could be a really long lasting relationship, they want to squeeze the extra two or three grand out of the deal that one time. And they nuke a relationship that could have been their deals paid for ongoing. I have this debate constantly with people. Yeah. You and I are in the minority on this. Most people would rather milk it all now. I guess they assume they're going to get hit by a car tomorrow. Okay. Nobody will show up to their and the funeral. Extra two grand is going to make a difference. I you guess know? it does. It seems that way. They want it all. No, I, I, nobody I want can it have all anything too, else. But it comes over time. Yeah. You know, and that two grand isn't going to be the make or break. Oh, they want it all now. Well, Mr. Joe Delia, of course, had a question for you. You know he would. What does the future of Mr. Tommy Desmond look like in real estate? As best as you can tell. Well. There's, there's uh, the things that I'm most interested in right now is uh, there's some kind of like, I guess, technical worlds in real estate. Like I'm really interested in rezoning property, changing use. Um, there's a lot of opportunity to like, you know, pick up a parcel that is zoned for a particular thing and then rezone it for something else. And, you know, there might not be any value in a property that is a single family residence that looks like crap off a main road as a single family residence. But if you rezone that as commercial and it's in line with the city's master plan, which is a key element most people don't get, um, I mean, all of a sudden you've taken something that really nobody wanted and you've converted it into something people do and you've added value to you it. Created value, yeah. And and there's a lot of opportunity for that. Yeah, you've embedded yourself in the belly of the beast here. This is commitment you're talking about, it is. right? Well, I mean, this is how you're the interested in this. You want to know how to do it. You embedded yourself in it. You don't get paid to do this work, right? No. Yeah, so it's volunteer work for the city of Troy. Yeah. No, there's no – well, actually, no. I, you do get paid, but I get a – like, no – I mean, it's like you get 20 bucks for showing up to the meeting, which reality-wise, like, I had to fill out my first uh, W-2s in, like, my whole life to do it. I would have rather just, like, let them keep the money. Just, yeah, keep your latte money. It's more the, of a hassle yeah. than it's worth. So you embedded yourself to figure out that and to learn how to rezone kind of path of progress stuff, too? Are you interested well, just in? see how that machine runs. Yeah. I mean, like, to, to see – how I mean to build out cities. I think in general the idea we're, we're moving into a world where, like it or not, globally the the people are merging mentally with each other across geographic boundaries. I think it's all a good thing, personally. We're we're go. I do too. I mean, we're we're amping up to the point we're going to be. There's going to be 10 billion people on this planet before we're dead. You know, and real estate and, and land and how the cities we live in are still absolutely intrinsic to the quality of life of all those people that figuring out who's doing this correctly uh it's very easy to have ideas about well this shouldn't be that way that shouldn't be that way but not too many people are in there figuring out how it works and proposing solutions they're just complaining about the way things work that produces no benefit to anybody complaining doesn't produce benefit no because everybody got to go back to the everybody's got an opinion oh this shouldn't run like this because x y and z and it's like all right well if we did it your way 
then all of a sudden all of these variables have to be considered and it screws up a whole bunch of other stuff. Well, you know what, and they don't think about that because they just like the simple fact that they're being, I'm being inconvenienced for this small thing right now. So the system's corrupt and ruined. It's like there's a lot of moving parts in this. And I do think there's plenty of things we can do better. I think that uh, I dislike the concept of the McMansion expansion of the suburban world. I think there's much smarter ways to be building better properties that last longer and and are more sustainable. Uh, you know, but after being in these these you know in this community that is the ones addressing these building codes, everybody hates building inspectors. Oh, their code! I sh- my property. I do what I want with my property, and I do agree to a certain extent. But there is variables that they might not have taken into account, like the stormwater drains for an entire city run based on a couple assumptions and if you start doing whatever the hell you want those assumptions start to shift and all of a sudden now it's overloading the system those same people who want to do whatever the hell they want to do also are the first ones to throw a fit when the sewers all back up and Don't break get all me their started shit. on stormwater drains. So, I mean, we shouldn't even have them. <laughs> the, the point we used is, to have ditches, folks. <laughs> we had ditches filled with styrofoam. Yeah, and all garbage and all the water went in there and soaked back into the ground. There, there's just a ton of, of options. And, I mean, again, to, in order to change anything, you have to learn the way that it's currently functioning and actually understand it not just throw your fist you know stomp about it and in cities to have they do they have the master plan and that master plan defines how their city runs it defines their zoning ordinance it defines all that stuff and if as an investor i mean we get investors all the time that show up and they want a zoning change just for them and they don't really understand the whole point of you know, like, well, of course you should be able to do that. It's a random house on a main road for whatever reason. You should be able to do whatever I want with it. Well, they never took the time to figure out what the city is planning on doing with that whole corridor. So if you – and you, all you have to do is show up and ask. If you go to the planning committee meetings or if you go, which is all open to anybody in any city, you want to know the best pocket to develop in Troy, you just listen. And they're all saying it. It's not like it's just hidden like, oh, you only know this stuff because you're on the zoning board. It's like, no, no, they're all public meetings. You just have to engage enough to do it one Do you guys time. Uh, stream the public meetings? Yeah, they're online. That's cool. They sell. I mean, not every, I don't know. Every city. I'm does sure it. not every city does. But I mean, but some of them do. Ours. Yeah. I mean, you don't I even have to get off the couch video. in that in that scenario. You could watch. And if you can't commit that much energy to your project, then I don't know what you thought you were about to do. Invest in real estate in the first place. But, but Tommy, like, I was going to get rich. I got that program. Off. You got it with yeah. the girls on the Lamborghini. And yeah, dude. All these books, and I love these twelve cars in my garage. Yeah, and everybody's got that. They just give you one. As just soon been as you get to. My license. will. Yeah. Been to my will, sir. Of course, uh, you know, that guy doesn't need to be selling books then, I guess, huh? Well, no, probably not. Yeah, but he does anyway, huh? <laughs> mm. <laughs> how do you think he pays for all those cars? Funny how that works. Yeah. So you're really into the sustainable building, too. That's uh, I know we talked about it, and I don't want to go too far into that, but that's something that you had mentioned I want to make sure that I address. And, and what do you mean by a sustainable building? Well, what I mean is that there we've got, you know, what, 35,000 years of uh, historical record about how people have created structures. And over the last, uh, you know, 100 or so years, we've formalized these things into hard and fast laws about uh, how, how things work, you know. And there's a lot of lost... Uh, the lot I don't want to call it technology, but there's a lot of lost 
options out there that probably need to be pulled back up to take a look at. I mean, there's a, you know, and I, I'm under no delusions of grandeur that it's going to go all the way to, uh, like, utopian design here. But if you look at, uh, there's a guy, Malcolm, is it Malcolm Gladwell? Oh, he's the guy that wrote Blink, isn't he? Yeah, he wrote uh, Tipping Point, too. Tipping Point. It's not Malcolm Gladwell. It's uh, Malcolm Wells. I'm sorry. Malcolm Wells is an architect uh, who, uh, if you look him up on Google, uh, he had a whole vision for how we can uh, take buildings and you can, uh, using earth and already existing things, you take care of the business of doing a lot of the insulation, a lot of the uh, heating and cooling is a huge drain on the power infrastructure in general of everything around us, you know, and if there are ways to convert those uh, currently you know, how, how things are currently set up and to start using some of that existing structure, even this building that we're in right now. Tom Strat designed this. You just met him, architect that is a uh, really good modern designer. And up until, what, four feet down, this building is entirely encapsulated by earth on all sides. The heating bills are about half of what they would be had they not done that. And all he did was push the dirt against the building and put ground cover on it. How long do you think, so some of the things I know for a fact we need to start doing, like south-facing homes, if you're in the northern hemisphere, if you're in the southern hemisphere, it'd Mm -hmm. be reversed, and if you're along the equator, it would be different. But Mm -hmm. like in the northern hemisphere, south-facing homes, deciduous trees in front of it to block out the sun in the summer, leaves fall down, let the sun through in the winter, earth around the house, water collection... No, yep. no more storm drains. Mm-hmm. Swell it. How many years do you think? Because you're now part of the beast, right? This is my problem with the beast, the belly of the beast. I guess, do you even think it's possible to make these changes? Sure. And how long do you think it would take to make these changes? I think we're about to hit another... Um because this is, this is bigger than just changing a light bulb to an oh, LED. Oh, this is, this is mean, figuring out how to have 10 billion people roads, live decent on a sewers, yeah. electricity, a lot of this stuff's already embedded. Yep. We're paying for it now. In fact, I read an interesting tidbit. I should go back and find it. Hopefully it's true. Um, we're still paying for the first time we built the highways under Eisenhower. So we're talking about the kind of infrastructure change. Shock me. yeah. That would be huge when we're still paying for the original infrastructure. Yeah. Well, it's even larger than that, too, because you're talking about changing the entire, not just the the infrastructure that exists, but the workers who are building the new infrastructure. I mean, there's a, I mean it's a major sea change. I think the thing that could have an exponential effect on it is the adoption of technologies um, into the home, which has not really become manifest yet, but is that's the next, uh, that's the disruption that's on its way. I mean, uh, for every house you've been in, how many of you walked in where there's actually an intelligent device controlling water and heating and all of that? I mean, probably not. I don't think any, no. Well, they exist, and more and more they're going to become commonplace uh, with things like what, uh, I mean, Elon Musk is probably like my biggest man crush, um, and with things like what he's got, the power wall, I mean, you can make these basically independent systems now that are somewhat self-encapsulated that can artificially control themselves based on news patterns. Realistically, we don't need our house to, uh, we don't need to go down and touch our thermostat to adjust our heat for the house at night. It should be 
dynamically sensing all of those things. We shouldn't have to really engage with much of these. And if we are, we should be engaging from our phone. Yeah, like, you know? Do you think um, it would be as ubiquitous as an iPhone in mm-hmm. 10 well, years? Well, it's coming. Or? I mean, this, this is an infrastructure that is the next evolution. Uh, now it's just a question of the, uh, the people you know, engaging with it, and especially the building trades. And I think a lot of the craftsmanship has been lost from construction. And, I mean, when you look at the way that they're building subdivisions now in some of these neighborhoods where it's like they're just stamping out these 4,000 square foot houses and you know buyers walk in and they're like oh the bedroom's a little small it's like let me guess it's 10 by 10 you want to know why it's 10 by 10 because drywall comes in 10, 10 foot sheets yeah I didn't know this to you so they're, they're 8 yeah. feet tall and they're 10 feet wide because they're is 4 arbitrary. by 10 yeah just completely arbitrary <laughs> and you don't have to yeah I mean that's what it is because that's then they don't have to pay people to cut anything down and it's just they walk in and they just stamp them up and that's they're literally designing houses based on the side that gypsum board, gypsum board already comes. Like How that, many years, though? How many years do you think before we're doing this stuff? Um, At a, a local... Generation, a generation, that's what I thought, yeah. I would say that I think we'll Your see children, sizable probably. change in 10 years, but I think that uh, it will not be fully implemented or like kinks worked out to the point where we're really seeing huge gains for like, you know, I don't know, when I'm old... The great apes that we are, we're slow to change on these things. You know, and that's based on the idea that we even have the infrastructures that we have. If they maintain long enough, who knows? I mean, who knows what can come? And everything we have right now is kind of crumbling. And if they decide to replace it with something wise, then we'll have a head start on that. If they decide to replace it with something crappy made by the lowest bidder, then we're still in for another run of bullshit. So Yeah, that um, would be where my vote is, but I'm pessimistic on this. You're far more optimistic than I am on this. Yeah, well, you never know. I think it's probably going to be somewhere between our two opinions. Yeah. You know, which is, I guess, better than nothing. Well, this is why I want to go out and farm. So. <laughs> you mean actual food, not. Yes. Not, yeah, since yeah. we did talk about Yeah, farming. sorry. I should probably be more specific. Yeah, I would like to go out and farm food and feed the world in a sustainable. I want to do that, too. Actually, actually beyond sustainable. I want to do it in a way that um, increases the value of the land. Mm-hmm. And um, you should look at Malcolm Wells. You really, uh, he just recently passed away. You, you, I think you'd get a kick out of his version Malcolm of what could. Wells, I'm going to write it down. Yeah, Malcolm. He's got a really impressive airport, a really cool gas station that's basically almost looks like a freeway overpass, but the whole thing's all grass. So, like you know, it's it still it utilizes the same footprints, but it's you know the whole building is all encapsulated by earth and that earth then becomes a fume filter you know because there's so many benefits to the way you know i like cob building i like corewood masonry but i'm I'm consciously aware that uh you know as somebody makes buildings it'd be real tough to get a work crew to start putting cob buildings up when the accepted development cycles are all built around these stick frame houses that go up in a fart time you know like i mean he's like done one fart in, in time, and it's up. Building's done. Well, yeah, you spend most of your money on labor and earth building. If you're not buying them prefab and yeah. then just dropping them in place, you know. It would be interesting if they had prefab earth houses at some point. I mean, you know, it's who knows? Somebody All the sustainable could, local people would be crying. Somebody might be able to figure it out. Yeah, well, you can never please everyone. No, they'll, they'll always cry. So <laughs> now we move into the section where um, – and it's 3.43, too, by the way. Okay. So how soon? Let me... Uh, well, let's hammer it out here. Yeah, we we'll, we'll go fast. I, I, success, I, have, I have an inspection, so yeah, and I've got to get to. In 16 minutes, and I'll do this fast. Success isn't an accident. Uh, it's purposeful. 
Well, you can't sustain success, I should say. We've all, I've been lucky, you've been lucky, right? What are some of the books, blogs, movies, things that have helped you um, along the way to become more successful and or find your path and way in life? Well, books, um, the, the biggest ones, I think I put them on the list, uh, Robert Greene wrote a book called Mastery, which is pretty phenomenal. Uh, and I, I listen to a lot of books, especially this kind of business stuff. Like, I read a lot, but I read fiction physically. Like, it's tough for me to get through some of this stuff without hearing it. So I'm an audiobook guy, so almost everything that I've read, I've really listened to. Um, and, I mean, the... That book, Mastery, is really powerful, and it speaks to how much time is actually required uh, pushing against a goal before you actually achieve anything of real value with it. You know, and I, I deal with this with my kids a lot, where they just assume that if you know within five minutes of doing something, if they're not good at it, then oh, I'm just not good at that, and then they stop trying to do it. And it's like, no, it's not the way gymnastics works. You're not like. Oh, I couldn't do a handstand, so I just can't do handstands. It's not the way things are. It's like, no, you do repetition over and over and over again, and you can do all of those things. You just have to put in the work, and I think we kind of got a little used to not having to put in so much work because everything comes to us so rapidly technologically now. Um, so that book really made me think about the concept of 10,000 hours of you know, pushing for anything at 10,000 hours, you achieve mastery at it. And that kind of, uh, that was, that was a, an insight shift. Uh, another one was The One Thing, which is another Gary Keller book. Man, I love that one. And that's a pretty potent book. You know, it's not about real estate. It's about anything. I mean, it's about doing work, about living life, really. I mean, like, it's the idea of focus, which I lacked. I think all of us lacked when we we're young, like, because we just want to do what we're doing. Like, Or let's say you're high D, high I. Mm -hmm. Oh, come on, like you and me. Actually, I got to step in here because you and Joe pointed me towards this book. And, Pretty cool, um, huh? <laughs> man. It's small, too. It's only like a couple hundred pages. It felt like the book was talking to me. Like, mm -hmm. literally, like Gary said, Jeremy... There were so many examples that <laughs> it wasn't just like, it was almost exactly. Dead on. And you're like, yeah. looking behind me going, fucker has been looking at me. He ruined And you're like, that's me. <laughs> that's me doing that shit. Yep. That's stupid. Why am I doing that shit? That's and true. that's the one thing by Gary Keller. And I'll a when brief. Jim Pop is on. Yeah. You got to give him his credit. Jim Pop is on. Sorry. Yeah. Second doesn't count, buddy. <laughs> Actually, you can cash those checks. Second counts all day long. Right? Uh, but the one thing is, what's the one thing you can do mm -hmm. that actually advances your goal? Your one, the one, the one thing. It could always be one thing, and I'm not talking about the one thing forever. It could be forever, but it could also be for the week. It could mm -hmm. also be for the day, and it could also be for the hour. It's the highest and best use of your time. Highest, best use of your time. What are you, what are you dicking around on that isn't getting you what mm -hmm. you want or what you need? Like trying to learn QuickBooks when your business is burning around you. And it turns out that you're, <laughs> you're not ever going to learn QuickBooks. You still not, don't know how it works. <laughs> be better to hire it out than it would be. Yeah, so you're high totally D, true. high I. That's, and that's I guess actually book. in line with that is also the E-Myth Revisited, which I didn't write down. But that is, uh, that's if you haven't read that, that's kind of in the same vein where it breaks down the the processes of the entrepreneur and i've done many of those like where i mean it's it's a really good book too it explains kind of like the inside game of of that um that that's the second time i think um i think 
was it Steve or Joe? I can't remember. Yeah. Well, else. Steve just got the E-Myth real estate investor version. I yeah, haven't I didn't read even that. know there was one. I didn't know that existed, yeah. but I'm going to get that. Um, so you like listening to a lot of books, too. Do you do the Audible thing or just download the book, MP3? Do you buy the MP3? or How do you do it? I have uh, – I, 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 there's a bunch of different ways. I mean, I download some stuff. I uh, – I, I I do have an Audible account, but they kind of tend to make things a little difficult to, I don't know, deal with. So I, I download uh, Amazon's cooler to me than Audible. But, okay. Um, yeah, I mean, I get them from all over the place. Uh, I've got literally tons and tons and tons, of hundreds and hundreds of these freaking things at this point. And uh, all old stuff, too, all the old Zig Ziglar and all that, you know, stuff from the 50s. I've, I've heard it all, the Tony Robbins. And, you know, not, you don't have to take every single nugget from every single thing. I mean, some of it's crap and you just, you know, let it float away. But some of it's got legitimate benefit, you know. And some, some of it's even if it's crap, it still works, you know. Like it can have a psyche effect on you even if it's bad. Last question. So I know, I know you got to get away and I appreciate your time here. So do you have some sort of continuing education beyond the licensing, right? But do you make time in your day for continuing education, improvement, coaching, that kind of thing? And and how do you address that? Because life is busy. We all know it. The phone starts ringing. The emails start coming in. You're doing your lead generation. Mm-hmm. Um, but you don't want to be that person who got left behind or things changing or you just – you get stuck at fifty thousand a year or eighty thousand. Yeah, there, there needs to be some sort of uh, a continuing improvement. Well, it's um, priorities. I mean, yeah, absolutely, it's a huge thing. And like one of my goals is to get my business generating the kind of income that I want to free me up, basically, to you know go and spend all of that time and energy. You know, take, and when I say classes, I mean classes in obscure things like, you know, Roman history and I want to learn Latin and like these things are not directly valuable, but I mean, they're beneficial for me generally as a person that wants to know stuff, you know. Um, well, what does it look like now? What does your continuing education look like now in your life? Well, my mine is not really uh, – it's not free form yet because I'm still doing – like I'm trying to get my broker's license right now. So that real estate-wise, I study – education. Yeah. yeah. Like that's a formalized program. Like so I, that I'm still involved with. Um, I also still spend a fair amount of time hunting uh, – in, in the in the programming world, in the code world, and like learning things, you know, computer stuff. Even though I write very little code anymore, um, there's a very high likelihood that uh, I will still do tech startups as well. Um, but I will one thing them, and I will get programmers that are better than me um, to write that code. You're not going to write the code anymore. No, no, because I know that like I'm a good programmer, but I'm not the best programmer. And I know that when I find programmers that are better than me, then I'll just hire them. Give them the money they want. Basically, yeah. yeah. Like being a uh, the idea of early stage, uh, early seed stage venture capitalism for me is a huge goal of mine. Like I want to be on that low level and find those shooters who are putting up projects that don't have a lot of places to go. And I'm not there yet because a lot of that is really, I mean, basically it's gambling, you know. But you know, as long as I'm coming at it from the place where I don't really need the return and it's almost like I don't want to call it a community service because it's still self-serving capitalist wonderland, but it is a community service. You can make money in a community service. Yeah. Everybody's got They're to not mutually exclusive things. So the know. socialists don't understand. They want a profit. <laughs> they want a profit for adding no value in a, in a globalized economy. And um, 
risk, that, man. Those people are taking risks. And as somebody who has taken a risk, and I dislike the idea that the I, that the risk gets marginalized in its value. It absolutely does, yeah. There's no like, risk. Oh, well, the, your company runs fine. They should split that company up amongst all the employees. And it's like, okay, but the guy who started it, like, yeah, he might not have done every heavy lifting crappy job. That's true. But... He put a lot of risk in that game. And yeah. if he didn't put that risk in that game, the rest of those pieces fall apart. He put the money in and he took the risk. The time. And if you want to socialize that as well, we'll start That's talking. an impossibility. You can't socialize that. We see the result of it is that they don't – doesn't produce much. Venezuela. Doesn't produce anything. Yeah. You know? You need to have that golden egg to chase and – to, to overcome the gravity of risk. You won't escape the planet of complacency. It's interesting without. how they focus in on the profit motive, completely oblivious to the fact that they're absolutely focused on the profit motive for them. Yeah. Yeah. That's it, true. it just it completely escapes them. That's that. totally true. I mean, the money is a result of an effective system. There you it's go. It's not like a thing that Laying you just down. get that's independent. Real talk. It's true. It is true. I mean, if you do productive things consistently, the money is the result of that. That's the profit that comes out of it. And I know everybody's going to there's going to be a list of people complaining about all the different specific details how that's the case. Let but it's em. tough. You take that one member of the equation out, the risk taker and the visionary at the top. If you pluck him out, the rest of that thing falls apart. Well, they also want to isolate geographically too. They somehow think that they're better because they were born in a specific geographical location on this planet. I, I don't understand that at all. I they look at the or what the the Mexican or the Chinese person, like they're a bad person for trying to advance their life and do better in their lives and yeah. do better for their families, and they're the evil person. That's part of a whole wider conversation about are we in a global village yet or not. I sure <laughs> wish we were. Something to think about, folks. You did not choose where you were born, and you did not choose your parents. These people no. are not evil. And it also doesn't affect your outcome either based on the things that you do with your time. Yes. We all have the same amount of time on this earth. Well, I know you have to go, so I'm going to be respectful and wrap it up. Um, I want to thank my guest, Tommy Desmond, Woo. for his time today. And I would like you like to encourage you to go check in on him, follow him. Go to TommyDesmond.com, TommyDesmond.com. You can hit him up on Twitter, at Tommy Desmond. If you like the Bigger Pockets forum thing, go to BiggerPockets.com forward slash users forward slash Tommy Desmond. And if you're maybe thinking about doing this or something like that or interested, go to OaklandCountyInvestors.com. Or if you're thinking about getting a real estate license, you can uh, drop me a line, too, and I will put you in touch with the right people. That's right. He you will. TommyDesmond.com. If you enjoyed this podcast and find it helpful, please share it with your friends. Give it a like across the Internet. Um, I'm still working on the iTunes thing. I know it's embarrassing for a 35-year-old to say this, but I struggle with it. I think I finally figured out the hard part last night. <laughs> I know it's funny. This is a free podcast, and uh, sharing it helps. Go to renegadedetroit.com. Yes, it's an old website. It is being updated. Um, if you're interested in attending the local meetings, go to meetup.com forward slash investors. Or go to facebook.com forward slash Detroit Investment Club. If you'd like to follow me, um, go ahead and hit me up on Twitter at Jeremy Burgess. And if you prefer to watch this or stream this on YouTube, go to youtube.com forward slash user forward slash Detroit Wholesalers. And as I wrap up this podcast, I do want to take a moment to encourage you to take the steps you need to become financially independent. I don't know what those are. But I do know there are many distractions, mistakes, 
poisonous people, bad habits, yep. bad starts in life, preventing you from continuing and sticking to your goals. Stick with it, man. Yep. Don't give it up. Do something every day if you can that gets you closer to your goals. I've been in the shit. It sucks. You do not have to stay there. And I do want to thank you for your time. I appreciate your time that you invested in this and your attention. And uh, for everybody listening, I'll catch you on the next podcast. And until then, crush it.